0: And many world championships and many Olympic goals does Paul O'Donnell need to win to be the, beta, the greatest sports person of all time in Ireland. Is there a number? Can we pick a number? Because he's going to do it.
1: OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app.
2: OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with Exfoliating Bar.
3: Right, it's uh, half past seven, it's Thursday morning. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. It's Jaron Owen with you all the way through until 10. I'm a little bit croaky because I'm just a little bit tired because I was at the road show last night, Owen, in Bicker Street. And you forget how good our road shows are because it's been so bloody long since we did a full one in Bicker Street. Uh, the venue is amazing, the guests were incredible. Apparently, Michael Owen was talking about Love Island. Yeah, kind of breaking some exclusives that are completely over my head, so they'll be coming your way soon don't worry wow so there there is your clip there's your
4: uh <clears> one <throat> to, to to pay off the whole thing
3: basically Michael going um, on the violence Ian Wright is astonishingly interesting mm. and an incredible performer, and he told a story about his um his stepdad and the match of the day theme tune and how his stepdad was just a bit of a prick was actually yeah. the, the phrase um which you know, in and of itself, is going to um, be really worth watching. But like the journey that he's been on to get to where he's become like this totemic, iconic figure in English football. I don't. Is he? Do they make enough of like he? He should be a national hero. And maybe he is. I kind of feel that there's like
4: there has been an Ian Wright renaissance that we kind of forget how long ago he actually played. Like I don't really remember Ian Wright playing at all, and it kind of feels as if he is in the sort of um the the modern pundit uh, sphere as in somebody who's only re- uh, walked away from the game in the last 10 12 years When I mean, that's not the case at all like it, he kind of feels almost kind of like newer to the punditry game than Roy Keane even even though Roy Keane obviously is a far more modern footballer than one that I uh, like have much clearer memories of of seeing him play I don't know what it is I, I I don't know I I I just don't know what it is what what's what's happened over the, the last 10 years but it seems that everybody's kind of woken up to Maybe what a, what a great person he is and that's possibly translated into what he's done or maybe he's just become a better pundit and that's given him better uh, exposure and, and as a result of that maybe people uh, think about him and talk about him a lot more. Like, I, that um, that match of the day story, like, I, I wasn't there last night. I should, probably should have gone. I'm going to get a serious phone this morning. Um, they're giving me the eyes as if that was a pretty stupid decision.
3: Well, we, um, yeah, you, know, you could have got backstage and been like, ah. Oh, see, I
4: don't think I would have been able to handle that, you know. It's like uh, a good, uh, never
3: meet your heroes and all that. Although in this instance, you, you should definitely should have. Yeah, your hero, it, This yeah. would not have been a letdown at all. You know, he's um, he's got a storytelling capability which and a comic timing Which it seems that a group of footballers or a bunch of those footballers came through and were able to do that yeah like similar comic timing timing to Keane he was doing Roy Keane impressions at one point as well (laughs) Um, which he's allowed to do apparently because they're mates you know
4: yeah, yeah. He's allowed as as anybody's allowed to do it, I suspect. Um, but like his his story is fascinating, and like I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing that that part about his stepdad because that like when his book came out a couple of years ago, that was definitely one of the most enduring images: the, the Saturday nights, the match of the day theme, and it not evoking positive memories whatsoever. Like pretty grim memories, and um, just. Kind of like um, the, the, the sort of picture that that painted of his his own upbringing and how that kind of formed the, the footballer he would be, and also the, if I'm not mistaken, the sort of circuitous route that he would have taken to become a, a, a footballer. Like he wasn't necessarily a, a wunderkind to everybody. The spoke opposite. about all the time. Yeah, he went the through opposite, Sunday League yeah. essentially, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and then eventually makes it to the top. And yeah, he's just I, like I think that for a certain vintage of Arsenal van, he is. The hero, like he is on a pedestal ab- above. Henri and, and above some of the players like the likes of Liam Brady who would have come before him um, for a lot of Arsenal players he is the player and I do think obviously uh, being Arsenal's record goal scorer for so long until Henri has come to the club statistically he was absolutely outstanding there's no question about it but there's something else there there's something different about Ian Wright there's a bit of gold dust about him as a person which I think probably endeared him to the fans even a little bit more
3: Yeah so that's going to come up you're going to hear that on the radio tonight and then the Michael Owen stuff will be played out over the next few days as well uh, also there Karen Carney and Emma Byrne in person, um, and uh, they were absolutely sensational as well. Emma Byrne is a star, and um, you're going to see a lot more of her, I think, on on our TV screens uh, in the coming days and weeks and months and years. So, yeah, sensational night, and uh, you're going to hear that of the. the um, but you do you you do have to go but that's the like i i had stopped yeah. going stuff you've been at everything you've been at like the opening of every envelope since i'm done you see yeah i'm, you, I'm, you're, I'm you're kind f- of you're finished now i'm, I'm finished yeah I, you're, like, you're partied out yeah
4: like there was there was tickets going for gorillas last night and i put my name into the hat here and work and i was like do i even want to go
3: do I even, can i actually be bothered if my name gets pulled out of the hat, I think Jojo actually wanted to take it right? to gorillas. Yeah, 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 he did. Yeah. So that was the other thing. Gorillas really ruined the amount of forty-something men who wanted to go to our roadshow last night. It was a, it was a very unfortunate clash. You could have put on, I'd say, maybe I don't know if any other band slash performer slash artist in the world would have um, damaged our ticket sales more than you know something from the early Noughties. Yeah, God, are we talking about people in their forties being in in touch with the early
4: Noughties? I think. We're, talk- we're talking 30-something-year-olds here, Ger.
3: I mean, you, you can cling to that for another 18 months, on. Yeah. Uh, go on, so you wouldn't have gone to Gorillas if you got a free ticket? No, I, are, I, are I you probably joking would.
4: Me? No, I would have gone. Of course they would. I've just seen them a few times at this point. I've already seen them this year. Uh, yeah, no, I've just... I've seen so many envelopes being opened, but um, yeah, like I have... I I guess the, I can't remember what the last roadshow I went to, uh, off the road roadshow, but even just kind of um, working on them as a researcher back in the day, they are electric events. They're absolutely brilliant. And when you have even just one guest who can command a room like uh Vicker street or I I just remember one time when we needed uh, Raj at uh, Cork Opera House one of the first ones he did with us it was just extraordinary he was absolutely phenomenal that night and um it's it's it's, it's absolutely the best version of anything that that we do I think when you have like so many people in the house and uh, sporting legends with everybody in that house in in the palm of their hand he told a story about um
3: uh, being at a live version of the Gruffalo when he was getting the phone call from Declan Kidney to say, you haven't made squat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have been in the Cork Opera House as well. Yeah, um, I I vague recollection of you wearing um, a, an old man's coat and having to sweep into a bucket. What was that? We were, I was actually having this, this, by pure coincidence, we were having a conversation
4: uh, with um, with a couple of my mates about that show last night because uh, a few of my mates, I obviously sorted them at free tickets and one of them ended up getting... Uh, incredibly drunk and had to, had to leave and they didn't get the whole show so we were having that conversation yesterday so this is the 2015 uh, World Cup road show before the quarter final which we um, obviously showed up to and lost but we had Felipe Contepomi at that one al, at the three arena no yeah, less it, oh
3: right so the, that was the one where. and well, um, what was the point of you dressing up what so the, I don't you know, know some was, kind of yeah, um, sweeper
4: Yeah, so it it was a kicking contest. So my job was to come in old style like the old guys back in the day with a a bucket of sand and then create a mound, a tea box uh, off a tea off uh, a, a bucket of sand. And then, I don't know, Raj obviously kicked the ball between the posts. I bet he did nothing. That was that I had one job and it was to make a Zangastle on stage. you look so great. you know, it was professional journalism. Any idea where you got the coat? That, that it was a Yeah, it was it was some someone in the building uh would have would have provided the call. I can't remember Right, uh, who? But it was uh, yeah.
3: As a matter of interest, why are you reminiscing over your off the ball career? On what's going on? What what life event is happening that you're, you've decided <laughs> to just getting old to go, play the hits? Getting getting with age, you know. No, no, just, no, no. I'm no. not going to let you sneak out the door just here. <laughs> There's only one full
4: week left. There's only one full week left, is there? Uh, yeah, I'm getting getting sacked. You know, um, you're getting don't, sacked don't. in the morning.
3: People will take that. People will take that literally. Ah. Oh. Why? Why are we doing? Why are we doing this? Because oh, I wanted to etch in so we can have a celebration. Owen's leaving, everybody, because <laughs> he won't say it. I'm going to say it.
4: Yeah, maybe maybe I should have gone to the off the ball roadshow last night. I would have had second thought. That's why I'm not going. And I'm trying to create. I'm trying to um, manufacture uh, necessary distance between me and my work now. At well, this we've point, we've noticed that so we definitely noticed
3: a slightly edgier tone over the last week or two.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, my tone is always edgy. It's seven thirty eight in the morning. Um, yeah, trying to create that distance because yeah, I'm uh, I'm leaving this. Leaving this gig,
3: and are you not telling anybody what you're doing? It's like I'm just complete, going. I'm, I, am
4: a, go, I am going wh- traveling for a while. I haven't been poached by anybody. I've never been poached by anybody. Um, oh, so hang on, and hang
3: no. you. stop me. You're going to come and get me. Play here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not what this is about.
4: <laughs> I'm not leaving for Pastures New. I'm literally leaving for Pastures New. Um, what's the pampas grass? Some, per- some personal news. Sorry, that's the other
3: uh, cliche. Sorry, I'm ruining your. You had like a carefully orchestrated plan for what this yeah comunicado of storm's storm's be. uh going yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of interest, would you've used Instagram? or would you have used Twitter as your official profile or platform to announce your TikTok yeah I would have danced my I would have danced my way out of here yeah uh, Boo is he getting sacked for not having a crappy quiz three Fridays in a row asks Mark Dunning yeah yeah possibly that, that, that would definitely be reason I mean that would have happened a couple of years ago if that was the case so Mark yeah true that, I think, I think that would be not the first three week uh, dry stretch constructive dismissal I think is what they call that one <laughs> <laughs> OTBM is brought to you live this morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish. So on the uptake there. As you can tell, we're we're all a little bit heartbroken. Uh right. There's loads of other news over the none as big as Owens, obviously. That's the bombshell that we're we're leading this morning with. We're not we're not burying the lead. Um Desi's staying for another two years. I think we know the identity of the next Kerry football manager. That's kind of slipped in under the radar. Yeah,
4: the uh, Tomas O'Shea is named as the county's next under-20 football manager. So he's taking over from Declan O'Sullivan for next year, it looks like. Uh, I think it's it's not confirmed yet, but it looks like he's the front-runner to get this job and it just needs to be signed, sealed and delivered at this point. So the under-20s job, I think it had been spoken about quite a bit over the last twelve months, that like what what is the succession plan in Kerry? Is is Declan O'Sullivan going to be the next man up? And maybe I'm not sure. Maybe maybe he still is an interest in becoming involved in the senior panel at some stage. But it did feel that maybe there wasn't a lot of clarity with regards to who would be the next Kerry manager. Like going back for for Jack last year, obviously was it, it kind of felt it, it's obviously worked out so so well. But when that appointment happens, you're thinking to yourself, so what's next after that? Who's the next in line? Because uh, I guess when you go back for a third time. To a manager, one of the things you can criticise it with is, well, where is the, the fresh coaching ideas coming from? Again, it worked out very, very well. So, where will the fresh ideas come from next time? And there's obviously a bunch of uh, footballers from the mid 2000s who are very interested in this uh, in this line of work. And Moss O'Shea uh, just even listen to him, uh, and his punditry will be one of the brightest minds you'd expect in it. So, I think this is an excellent appointment for Kerry seeing him go up to Rodeafley um was was maybe something that it wasn't something that was going to worry Kerry it would have been a, and and I'm sure the last year was like a great education for him working with uh, John Mahan. but I think that the sense is always that there would be a job for him at some point in Kerry in the 20s job is I think that's a, a brilliant appointment brilliant for Tomás brilliant for Kerry
3: yeah um how I, I does it does it set a clock in some ways on what's next like it's a two year term i think um backroom team tbc some uh suggestion that perhaps James Moyne might be involved it's a good opportunity to put together a dream team backroom team now and get to know each other and see if it works and if it doesn't work that's fine you can move on to somebody else yeah that's that's true
4: actually and like I, i'm sure that they'll kind of, kind of be looking at whatever team they set up can this team be uh, transplanted into the senior setup at some point in the future i'm not saying that the senior job is going to come up anytime soon but uh ca- can they actually bring that to, to the next level so i think They know that they've got a very talented bunch of players to work with. They're not stupid. They'll know that they have an opportunity to win an All-Ireland. They possibly could have won an All-Ireland this year and maybe they should have won the All-Ireland this year. They came up against an excellent Tyrone team but on the day, Kerry didn't give uh, as good an account of themselves as they possibly could have and um, they got undone by two incredible perform- performers in that Tyrone team in, in Canavan and McLean who will go on to be senior stars so Kerry held a candle to that Tyrone team is probably the most negative spin you could put on that Kerry performance that day so that bunch of players is, is is excellent and a few of them are underage I think again next year so he has the players to go and win in All-Ireland and as I've said so many times in this show the 20s is such a good indicator for uh, All-Ireland success at senior level and Kerry would be missing that but since Killian Young captained another the twenty-one team can't even remember what year was it was at this stage. Uh, they haven't won an all Ireland since at that grade, so that's that's the next thing to be ticked off the list for them.
3: All right. The other big news over overnight, obviously, is uh, Rashida Adeleke and a stunning performance to run a new Irish record in the four hundred meters. Um, she'll be running in the four by four hundred on Friday. That's today, tomorrow. Lost today. The there. Told you a little bit brain dead after being at the roadshow show. And um, this is like this is really interesting because she's taken the American college route and it did sound like the American college route might be on the horizon for Israel Sunday yesterday as well when we were talking to his coach Mm -hmm. that like at some point down the future he might do that which you know in fairness like uh, if you can get a high powered American education not that there's anything wrong with our education it's probably just as good if not better but the connections you'd make the opportunities you'd get the sponsorship all that kind of stuff and you can now earn money as a collegiate athlete in America in a way that you couldn't do in previous decades so um, yeah it's just cause she has taken that route having started here and um, is at the end of a grueling grueling season and at one stage wasn't going to come to the European Championships um, but she has come and uh, was disappointed herself she said she tied up a little bit yeah you could see her reaction afterwards yeah and then I think like it dawns okay well I, I've certainly I've done a job here by setting a new target for myself next time yeah it was it was so so good to watch like the 400 is 400 is probably my favourite
4: race to watch it's just the perfect length it's like the perfect le- level of drama and you're never quite sure until that final bend just how they're placed and it's great as well just to kind of get that level of insight afterwards just given she's given her height and uh, given how claustrophobic that inside lane can be how difficult she was um, with with her position at the start of the race but yeah that disappointment at the end was really interesting because I guess we probably had more information than she did at that moment but regards to her time that she had run an exceptional time and I wasn't even 100% sure until the NR came up that it was a national record it's it's incredible how back to back nights it's almost been a mirror image of each other like top six finish national record uh, and like just so much hope uh, around a young athlete like on on the collegiate thing like it's we've had so many people in studio over the last few years who've kind of like talked down the collegiate system a little bit where they say that everything that they have and everything that they need is in Ireland so that comes down to two things facilities and more importantly coaching and everything you hear about for example like Daniel Kilgallen who we had on the show yesterday and the work he's done with Israel Aletunde and a lot of the young sprinters is that he's an exceptional coach and that the level of coaching here at the moment and within the athletic system in Ireland is in a really good place. Uh, at the same time, and maybe it's a, at a very similar level, you look at some of the things that, that rashida has been able to achieve since going over to the States, and I, I presume the facilities at University of Texas are absolutely extraordinary. But even things like the, the, the one of the coaches that she has, uh, like in Edric Florial, who's the, the head coach at University of, of Texas, would have represented Canada, I think, in the uh, long and triple jump. And just just that sort of international experience that you get from going international yourself is is invaluable and like I, I'm not saying that the coaches are better around the world than they are in Ireland but at that stage in your career sampling different
3: environments can only be a good thing you'd suspect yeah it, it's really hard to know because the um, when you go to college they run you in every race that they can possibly run you in because you've got to get points and you've got to you're an asset like, to them exactly and and they're absolutely going to make sure that they, they milk that whereas you know you can peak three or four times a year as an Irish athlete in the Irish system and focus specifically on these big tournaments uh, big um, championships like some will work for some people some will work for others I I remember listening to Sonia Sullivan talking about um, the desire to race that racing made her better and obviously in America you race all the time and like Ronnie Delaney which is obviously far less relevant now than it would have been you know 30 years ago but 50, 60 years ago he raced and raced and raced and raced and raced and raced and raced now I'm not sure that that gives you massive longevity on the other side in terms of like the wear and tear in your body or the injuries, and your injuries don't get time to rest. But um, for some of these careers, that might be the right thing, and for some for some people who are more durable than others, it might be the right thing. For others, it might not be. Like,
4: yeah, like I guess it's interesting. Like we would see Adeleke as not after this week, but maybe we would have seen her as as someone for the future. And Athletics Ireland would see her as someone for the future, and they're carefully crafting your career in order to peak for games on the line. Whereas University of Texas are seeing somebody here today going up against your big rivals uh, at, at athletics meets you've got to win here and now now of course that means that as an athlete you're absolutely in that competitive state day in day out and that's what all athletes want to be experiencing and maybe you don't get that here in Ireland but at the same time if you possibly want to go and achieve your goals at, at Olympic Games a, every four years and, and ma- make a few of them, then maybe not being in the collegiate system is better. So it's it's there there is no right answer to it, and, and it all depends on the athlete, but it's hard to make a case that Alecki has, has suffered from her trip to Texas over.
3: No, and Greg London says, Unbelievable performance from Rashida, 19, raced all season, only sixth ever 400 metres. Most her age are heading for the under 20 Europeans. It did feel like the 100 and 200, she wasn't going to quite make the level that you need to be at to be world class and then it's like actually you know what the 400 okay let's go and it's it's been like a brilliant strategic decision Yeah like and she, like she, she's saying that she
4: can get so much better at the 400 and like if it's her sixth race obviously she can like it, I'd be interested to hear what their thoughts are on the 100 and 200 at this point actually because um Obviously, she has been exceptional in an Irish context at it, but they're obviously thinking that there's a possibility of being world-class at 400 then.
3: Yeah, like you're, you're up against the best Jamaican sprinters, the mm-hmm. best US sprinters, and maybe that was the, the benefit of going to the US is that you get that experience and you go, okay, I need to think about this, and, and where the my, my particular skill set is going to um, bear most fruit, and it appears to be at the moment that it's in the 400. Um, so it'd be great because like, the women's 400 and the men's 100 like, we're going to have week long interest in whatever is happening off yeah. track for the next decade. And as songs as Kier McGee can keep uh, plugging away forever, uh, then, uh, then we're sort of for, for an entire meet, yeah. Yeah. OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock. Neve Briggs is going to join us from Japan, where Ireland are on their first ever tour. The women are playing two tests against Japan on Saturday and the following week. Gregor Paul is going to join us at 10 past eight to talk about Joe Schmidt and the impact that he's going to have. On the All Blacks, we'll bring in the sports pages and news with John Duggan. Uh, Alan Dawson is a fight correspondent who's going to talk to us about Usek Joshua this weekend in Saudi Arabia. And Red on Red is a new book detailing the rivalry between Manchester United and Liverpool. A very appropriate time to start our build up because uh, Liverpool and Man United are playing next. That's like, that's next on our sporting agenda. Uh, and it's, the context couldn't be more perfect.
4: Like Crystal Palace did a big favor to the atmosphere around this game next next Monday, I would have thought, and same with Fulham. Obviously, that you're, the Manchester United fans are going in with, to this game with just a perfect level of of hope that if Liverpool do smash them, then it is shocking and awful again. Whereas maybe if Liverpool had like smashed Fulham and Crystal Palace, then uh, everybody's just expecting a, a complete rollover. Whereas if it
3: happens, then it's uh, it's still it's still shocking. There's some talk in the papers that the Glazers are open to selling a, a minority stake. I, I mean, there's definitely rumours doing around that they were actually that the club is for sale, and maybe that's how you find out if, what, what price someone would pay for the whole thing. Oh, we'll we'll sell you a minority stake, and somebody comes in and says, uh, "I'll buy the whole thing," and that's how that process works. Who knows? Again, with this stuff, um, they might be better at buying and selling companies than they are at buying and selling footballers. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, one of the newspapers reports it as an exclusive, but everybody has it that uh, Jim Ratcliffe is interested in buying Manchester United His, he owns the company uh, Ineos the, the uh, chemical firm and he's a billionaire and he was in for Chelsea but it turns out he's a Man United fan so the Chelsea thing was just because he wants some interest in a football club he wants to have control of a football club was how the spokesman said it you know he's a season ticket holder at Chelsea as well I think so yeah but he's a Man United fan he is a Man United fan so yeah, you know, I mean, I suppose if you live in London, uh, I don't know. Does he live in London? Do, do, do they live? So, yeah. Do they live anywhere? Really, they're uh, global citizens. Um, so, uh, anyway, whether or not that is a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. What kind of owner he would be? The anybody but Glazers is kind of what. The Man United fans must be thinking, but again, as we said yesterday, when the almost rumor slash joke was uh, doing the rounds, like is it is 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 that necessarily better? You got to be careful what you wish for, right? Um, and so I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen here, and I don't, I actually think that like. Uh, this is going to be one of those long-running transfer sagas that could run and run and run and run and might just be one of those stories that never has an end. Possibly. Like, we don't know for sure how serious Radcliffe was about
4: Chelsea. It seemed he was pretty serious and was very much in the mix until Todd Bowley stepped in. But quite often in these situations... That's a, a convenient interruption by by somebody who actually did pop into by the club. So would Ratcliffe have actually followed through and bought Chelsea? Who knows? What I find interesting is that like the first thing I think of when I hear of Jim Ratcliffe is you know uh, environmental damage and also of course Team Ineos in uh, in cycling and the connection to Sir Dave Brailsford who has been mentioned over the last. 18 hours as well as somebody who could become involved in the takeover and be involved in the setup at Manchester United, and like I'm not sure is that something to be excited about? Is it something that Manchester well, United fans be getting good again? They, yeah, exactly. Manchester like like,
3: like, United fans don't care. They all they see is he was successful. I don't care.
4: Yeah, it would be fascinating if Brailsford actually was involved in this and I'll make an omelette
3: without breaking some eggs.
4: I, it's true, but if he was able to transfer his expertise into Football, it, w- it would be genuinely astonishing that there's a lot of marginal gains that uh, Manchester United would need to make up in order
3: to close the gap to the top a thousand, four. A thousand little mini gains on. Yeah, exactly. They all add up into an extra 15 points a season, and there you go, we were champions. It's That's, as easy as that. Look, um, imagine a PowerPoints. Yeah. He probably uses Prezi, but there's a, something <laughs> something swanky that he can use.
4: Imagine Dave Brailsford and his shtick. That would go down so well with the Manchester United fans if it was winning. If, they, if it's it let the winning football. Oh. Like, because all the, the buzzwords that are so easy to digest it's not just Man
3: United fans in fairness all football fans would be like yeah oh sorry 100% right Shifty lad WTF what up this is obviously in response to Owen's breaking news this morning Connor Mullins says best of luck Owen you will be sorely missed on OTB that's nice that is nice comment. Thanks, man. Owen McManus. So is this the dying whimper of the crappy quiz? No, no. The quiz predates, Owen. It does. It will survive and outlast, Owen. The that quiz is certainly like will. a cockroach in the nuclear holocaust scuttling out into broad daylight and getting stamped on by whatever whatever new mutants survive. It getting stamped on by John and Donegal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. John Clappy. Will Owen get to do a Fergie and pick his replacement? He's definitely trying. You can. He is trying to lead the witness. And your job now
4: to get behind the new ODBAM co-host,
3: uh, Owen is a huge loss, but hopefully he will be back. Says Noel Cal. Yeah, this is good. This is like being yeah. at your own funeral. Yeah, yeah. A bit, a bit less. There'll be more singing at your funeral, would there?
4: Um, possibly. A bit more drunkenness, I'd say. A bit more. Yeah, I mean, that remains to be seen. What level of drunkenness will be like this morning?
3: Uh, best of luck, Owen. Sorry, JP Carey says sickened. Owen will be missed. Watching from Brisbane. That's a strong word, but thank you. Will you go to Brisbane? Is that on your on your list? Possibly. Actually, the list is endless. Bernard Lawless says, you'll be missed, Owen. Enjoy the travelling. Thank you very much. What if the travelling is just a bit of a pain in the hole? I, I have thought about that. Like,
4: you know, it's... But it's I, have, I have said that, like, when my friends are asking me, like, you'll be gone now for a long time. And I was like, I, I, it could have just be a pain in the hole. I could also, like, lose all my money in a casino in the first two weeks and
3: be home by Halloween. Do you think it's a good idea to go to the casino in the first two weeks? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah if you can make a pile of all your winnings and risk it all in oh, yeah, just one it. toss yeah just think think about the positive be outcome be a man my son that one think about yeah think about the, think about the positive outcome not the negative uh, uh, <laughs> David Bosang Bosang David says best wishes on you'll be missed if they change Kerry to the team of the decade will you come back yes I won't even go
4: well, if Ger Martin Brittany can get on a conference call with me right now and put them above Tyrone in
3: the all time team rankings I then. would do anything anything but I won't do that <laughs> <laughs> Paul McGee says Owen oh, did the job for the Kerry Mafia leaving with the Kingdom being champs again job well done and now he rides off into the sunset that's it yeah you're supposed to like do your victory lap for the year and then before next year's championship when it looks a little bit you know there's been there's been upset in the camp Clifford's injured yeah
4: yeah yeah Clifford's injured wow okay Look t- tempting fate there yeah no the job is done at this point I was I was inserted at a very bad time actually like literally first, first all Ireland since working here full time so yeah Okay You were you, you like you, Now you're being extracted You're like be I've been put in to do one job And I did a job And now it's done okay. And now I can go home So
3: it's like the Americans The the TV series you're, You've yeah. been a sleeper spy A sleeper agent That's This it. whole time And when I say I'm going travelling I'm just doing the ring of Kerry 7.57 this morning OTBA I'm brought to you live morning by Gillette Labs For an effortless finish to your day A reminder Braeburn Coffee Is the official partner of OTB Every week we're giving One lucky viewer a 100 euro voucher To spend on some Brayburn Coffee goodness At an apple green store Near you Enter, check out at off the ball on Twitter just like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you're in the draw Braeburn coffee is Apple Green's new premium coffee brand that offers customers the best coffee experience on the road it's available now at 30 locations nationwide let's head to Japan uh, we were once big in Japan Neve Briggs how are you Hi guys, how are you? Very good, very good. We're um, excited to see what's coming your way for the next 10 days or so. Uh, what is Japan like for a, a touring team? What's it actually like to be out there at the moment?
5: Yeah, look, it's, it's incredible. Uh, we've been here since last Friday. Um, arrived into a typhoon for Friday and Saturday in Tokyo. Um, got a bullet train down to Hamamatsu um, on Saturday. And it's been absolutely scorching since uh upwards thirty six, thirty seven degrees. degrees um, so it's been tough tough for the girls to be training in but um, they've been brilliant the effort's been unreal but from a tourist point of view it's an amazing place definitely something that anybody who can should try and go Owen I know you're heading off for a year there you should definitely try and put it into your bucket list it's a, it's an unbelievable experience
3: Owen of course was there for the, the World Cup and um,
5: oh I remember Yeah,
3: yeah he would go around telling everybody he was a YouTuber and that was like the best thing you could possibly be in Japan
5: that was the best content I remember from that World Cup. <laughs> the
4: the uh, content obviously was, uh, was kind of despite the, the, what was happening the pitch. Like the, uh, the, ham, uh, the hamamatsu factor there is like PTSD, proper PTSD from an Irish rugby yeah. supporting standpoint. Like that's obviously where uh, the team stays, or certainly where the media stayed right before that disaster in, in Fukuroi, wasn't it? The, the, the game against Japan. So um, there's, there's no PTSD on your front, I suspect.
5: No, no, it is not. We're heading there tomorrow for a captain's run um, and play there Saturday, obviously. And to be fair, we, somebody, somebody the other day said, Oh, God, this is where um, Ireland played Japan uh, in the World Cup. But um, I hadn't really coped to be honest. But um, look, it's just been an incredible experience for this group of players. You know, we've never been on a tour before like this, never been on a summer tour. So to get the opportunity to try and I suppose, build more strength and depth with a lot of young girls on the squad that are, you know, hoping to, to make an impression over the next few weeks. And um, it's just going to do us good stead, obviously, with the good news coming in relation to the high performance side of the game and, and ro- rolling straight into the Six Nations. So I think it's just a really good time for women's rugby in Ireland. Um, it's probably been a while since we can say that, but I just genuinely believe it.
3: How many um, do you actually have on the tour at the moment? What's the number of players you have with you?
5: Uh, with 29 players, 29 players, um, lots of them are incredibly young, it's, uh, it's scary to see, um, and, and uh, 18, 19 years of age, a good chunk of them just under leaving certs, and they've come into this, this environment, and they're thriving, um, and it's unbelievable to see, I think for us, very much kind of, um, as a coaching ticket, we wanted to make it as developmental as possible, because obviously we're in, you know, Japan are heading to the World Cup in September, October, we're not, so we need to have this opportunity to try and continue to build, and, grow strength and depth and kind of get over that hump But you know, I feel like for the last few years, we've, we've been saying we're building all the time. We need to start now finding players of international um, calibre that can that can play week in, week out for Ireland. And um, I think this group can for sure.
4: Is there an extra pep and a step, neve from everybody involved when news of professional contracts get announced and that idea of there being light on the horizon? Can you just feel like a, a lift in the entire camp?
6: Oh,
5: hugely. Um, it's Um It was unbelievable. We were in Dublin camp for the week before we came out here and it had just been announced about Gillian McDarby taking on the role of the high performance. I think everybody was really excited about that and obviously the announcement of the contracts afterwards. And and even just when we're here, you know, full-time physio, that's been appointed. It's, it's really, really good. And, you know, full-time S&C now at Ed. And I think it's just starting to the direction of the game and the program is starting to change. And um, I think from that point of view, you know, it's tangible. You can actually see it. Um, so it's great. It's brilliant. I mean, you can see the players too. They're really buying into it. They're, they're loving the fact that, you know, they're going to be on par now with, with everybody else, hopefully. And, um, and I suppose the beauty of it is that it's a program that's brand new and can be so, you know, can be so good for the game within the country because it's something that you're literally starting from scratch, and I think that that's just a really exciting project to be involved in.
3: With 43 centralised contracts, um, I, I don't know, does that include or not include the sevens? I hadn't, I'm not sure if, if um, that detail has been announced yet, but that means that there's loads of people who are still maybe not in the squad who can actually look a little bit enviously but be working away and thinking, you know, I want to make sure that I am next in line for that as well.
5: Yeah, hugely. And look, this, to be fair, you know, there's going to be players in this squad that might not be able to be contracted in relation to their work situations and, and their living situations and um, and they're still continue to, to play for Ireland I imagine I think it's just a case that we've got to start somewhere in terms of the foundation of what we're trying to build um and it's definitely you're right it's something that young girls now at 16 17 18 years of age can can aspire to be they can aspire to be contracted rugby players and and you know get into that high performance environment. I think that's the most important thing. I think we've you know, we've always trained and wanted to be aligned with the high performance um side of the of the union and we're here now and it's about educating young players and, and, and girls of what high performance looks like. It's not just about training and, and recovery. It's about strength and conditioning. It's about the ability to be robust and um and to train day in, day out. That'll be something, you know, that's not most girls you know all of us wouldn't have been used to before in, in terms of the the load and the management of it so you know there's loads of little mini facets but i just think it's a really really exciting time for the game and um i yeah i just think that you know it's starting to now put it on the map and, and take these you know these players seriously i think that's what's something they've been crying out for for a very long time
3: the um with the, the makeup of the squad that you have when when should we expect to see uh Discernible style of play and an identity for the team, again because you know it, it's hard in the Six Nations. There's there's been a, a tier of the professional teams and the non-professional teams. So um, I think people probably need to temper their expectations a little bit about what the outcomes are going to be in the immediate short term. But this this is very much a long term project with the makeup of the squad. You've got at the same time, you know, you guys as coaches, you want to implement a game plan and look for patterns of play and look for partnerships and look for good behaviour. So with, within that context. What what constitutes success for you guys over the period of the next ten days, for example?
5: <clears throat> That's a really interesting question because we haven't really spoken about. I I, it, I don't think it's a case of well, if we go and win two tests and it's been really successful. I, I think the more exposure that we can give to players, the high level of training, the more exposure we can give them to um, actual physical game time, um, the more exposure they get to 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 understand what it is to, to play international rugby, then. We've definitely, you know, come away with a win from this these couple of weeks. I think they've put a huge amount of work in over the summer. You know, and Greg and John have been running a program for anybody who hasn't worked, and so like teachers and the college students, they've been literally training a few days a week in in the HPC in Dublin. So I feel like we just we're we're moving forward all the time with this group. You know, it, even like obviously we've a lot of young girls, but also the older players that are there and have been there for the last few years. I just feel like that we've, you know, in terms of skill level, it's been a big work on for us, our ability catch pass, the breakdown, those kind of core skills, they've got to be the foundation of what we're trying to build on. And um, the patterns and the style and the structures, you know, they have to come afterwards. But you've got to make sure that you're fit and robust enough to be able to continue to, to train uh, at a really high level. And I think that from a short to medium term, that, that's got to be a focus. And um, whilst trying to, I suppose, empower players to get better at rugby and um and understand the game more but you've got to try and find a balance to it too because you obviously don't want to go out and play no rugby you've got to make sure that you know your rugby quota is getting checked but also you know that strength condition side of it is, as well so um yeah look we haven't i think for us as a group we're just looking to Continue to get better over the next ten days. I think the level of training here has been unbelievable. You know, I think it helps when the weather is really good. Although the players are probably saying it's it's too hot, and um, and the facilities are amazing that we're training at the moment. So um, yeah, I, I just think for us as a group, it's it's seeing the actual culture, the environment, move to another gear, but also you know that understanding of the game and and their core skills. I think that's probably what we'll mark down as a win.
3: Yeah, it's kind of never ending, isn't it? Like, it's quite daunting when you list out all the things that you need to get better at, but at the same time, it's quite exciting in that you actually have the opportunity to work on everything.
5: Yeah, hundred percent. I don't find it daunting at all. I think I just think that this seems to be the start of a new era for this team and and this squad. And there are players that you know aren't here with us through injury or or, or otherwise, and and they've still got to come back into the mix as well. So, I feel like you know, for now, I think that you know, women's rugby in Ireland. Although it's been true, you know, a turbulent few years, it's definitely, you know, on the up and I think that the environment and the culture, this high performance um, appointment is, is is going to be really good for the game.
3: Can you explain to people who maybe are unfamiliar, what will the difference of um, Gillian McDarby being there, what will her role be and, and what will the difference of having somebody in that role um, as uh, proficient as she is to actually run it, what difference will that make to, to women's rugby in Ireland?
5: Yeah, look, I just think it's it's probably aligning it more to to you know just the female game. Gillian's incredibly good at her job. She's I've had the pleasure of working with her when I was a player, and um, she's always seems to be type five person. Seems to be brilliant at everything, and um, and I've no doubt that she'll excel in this role. Her role will basically be you know at the head of high performance, and and, and also the pathways and I think that's the most important part of the, the role in my opinion because we need to make sure that we have foundations and pathways in place for young girls to have something tangible to come through to and I think I've always said it wasn't a case about throwing money and contracts to players and having nothing underneath it because it would be very short-lived then it'd be like almost you know that USA soccer women's soccer leagues for years you know they'd have a big burst of money and they'd have two or three years of, of a league and then they'd have nothing for a few years afterwards there's a bit let go and I think I think that pathways is so important with Gillian and, and Katie Fitzhenry in there are doing a really good job on that and hopefully we'll see the fruits of that labour over the next few years but you know you hit the nail on the head a little while ago we've got to be patient now this can't be a quick fix I, you know I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record but it can't because we need to make sure that the foundations that are there the pathways that are in place for you know, under 18s, 20s, um, into that senior level um, will be there forever and will continue to, you know, ha- be almost like a conveyor belt for, for for young girls and players to be able to push themselves forward for a national team. So, um, look, I'm really for- looking forward to seeing the the impact that Chilean can have on this game. I think it's, it, it's just, it's genuinely really exciting and I'm just delighted to be involved in it.
4: What's that been like as a coach then, having to remind yourself that patience is required? Because I'm sure everybody who's new to the coaching game has their own ideas and, and their own things that they want to imprint on a team, especially if you're going to be working with the backs. Have you had to kind of think to yourself, listen, this is, this is a building process myself and it's going to take time before my own ideas on this team actually, before I can actually put my own stamp on this team?
5: yeah look absolutely part of you is very aware that you've got to be patient both with yourself and the players around you, but also it's an international team and you've got to make sure that you've got standards and and you've got to affect that that change for those standards so while they're young and um and I'm relatively new at, at coaching, you know we still got to keep pushing and striving to be better all the time and um so we do a lot of work off the pitch in terms of the backline. we do a lot of work in terms of trying to get understanding in timing and lines and um and yeah, look I think it's it's brilliant. But um while I do consider present am patient enough, I think it's it's important that we keep driving those standards and making sure that you know, the time that we have on the pitch is very limited. You can't really waste reps doing, you know, not knowing your role and um and being sloppy. Um and like so they're kinda of the stuff that the girls have come up with themselves that are kind of their non negotiables in terms of their behaviours. And um, so from that point of view it's Kind of easy enough to be patient because you know that they're working really, really hard. And if it's a mistake, it's just a genuine mistake. And on the flip of that, they've got to be patient with me because I'm also learning on the job as well. So, but it's been great. Look, Greg, John, and and Dennis have been brilliant um, over the last few weeks. So it's it's just look, it's just a really good journey, I suppose.
3: Uh, how good are this Japanese team?
5: Yeah, they're very good. They're they're similar to their men's style. They they, they like to move the ball really, really quick. They're they're not absolutely massive. They're not huge, but they're incredibly proficient at, at all those core skills. Their their breakdown work is exceptional. Their ability to catch pass is really, really good. And um and you know, they've coming off the back of two tests against South Africa. They played Fiji not so long ago in Australia in June. So they've had a huge amount of time together over the summer. Um and obviously they're heading to the World Cup. So look we're under no illusion that, you know, it's a big task in front of us, but I think that we continue to kind of focus on ourselves and and what we can do, and try and expose these young girls to, to as much kind of game time and international experience as we can. Then, I, I I'm not really sure that the result is going to you know be the main point of it for us afterwards. It might be to the outer public or the wider you know scale of things, but but not for us really.
3: Well, look, we wish you the very best of luck with it. We're delighted to hear everything's going so well for you. Enjoy the rest of your time. Those games are live on TGGarrett, by the way, if everybody wants to watch them on Saturday as well. Neve. great to talk to you again. Thanks a million. Cheers.
5: Thanks, guys. Best of luck on.
3: Cheers, Neve. It's breaks Briggs there. Owen, you're going to have a week of this now? People telling you, saying nice things
4: about you? Yeah, it's not ideal. But, um, I know, that's... I did it on purpose. I know. I'm ruining it for you. Yeah. One... one um... One goodbye at the very end would have been um,
3: nice. A little, a little Irish goodbye where you actually just that would be even better. I'd say you've perfected the art of the Irish goodbye in your life, have you?
4: Yeah, and I think I think I've already started to do it. There's like definitely a few people
3: that I've been like, oh sure, I'll I'll see you before uh, I go, yeah, and I know you. the I'm not gonna, I'm not
4: gonna see you. <laughs> I'm not texting. You.
3: <laughs> why, why are you saying that publicly now on on a live sometimes, show? This morning, because sometimes you just forget that you're on air. We'll clip that bit. Yeah, <laughs> you can just you can just also, send them that. Also, my friends
4: don't like necessarily watch the show either, so it's like uh, I can get away with it. like I can talk. This has been like great, great therapy for me. I can like chat shit about them behind their backs, and I just know that they won't see it.
3: OTBA. I'm brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. After the break, we're live with Gregor Paul in, of the New Zealand Herald uh, reacting to the news that Ian Foster is staying on as the All Blacks boss, but with a beefed-up role for Joe Schmidt. OTB. Right, 16 minutes past eight this morning here on OTBAM. I'm delighted to say Gregor Paul is back with us to talk about the developments in New Zealand rugby. Gregor, we were going to have you on earlier on in the week, but we were waiting to see what happened with Ian Foster, and now we know he is staying. Were you surprised?
6: Yep, wee bit. Look, like all, all uh, signs, evidence, um, journalistic endeavor was leading us to believe that pre pre the ellis park test match last weekend that the decision had already been made that that he was going to be moved on and uh, they were going to make a change at head coach and then unbelievably they they win at ellis park uh, and all of a sudden here we are and they've changed their minds and ian foster is a coach quite surprising didn't think that was going to happen
3: how important or otherwise is the beefed up role for Joe Schmidt in giving the New Zealand board confidence or like, is that, is that Foster's decision? How did that all come about? And what does that feed into the decision making? And what does it say about the decision that was made?
6: Yeah, look, I think that's been a huge part of building confidence because if we look at the evidence here, um, you know, the All Blacks were sitting on five losses out of the last six test matches prior to Ellis Park. Um, they they weren't playing particularly well. In fact, they were playing very poorly. They didn't look like they knew what they were doing. They were lacking cohesion. They didn't look like they were going to beat um, the last two tests against Ireland. We all know. They didn't look like they were ever in those games. They went to play in Mondella. Uh Didn't look like they were ever going to win that game. Their attack game was terrible. So you're looking at that going, well, look, clearly they're, they're, everything's broken here. Nothing's working out. And all of a sudden, they produced this incredible performance at Ellis Park but no one saw it coming. And that's changed the whole dynamic. And I think there were a couple of really critical factors that that have persuaded the board to stick with Ian Foster as head coach. One would be after the game, a handful of senior players, and here I'm talking Sam Whitelock, Sam Kane, Ardy Savia, Aaron Smith, looked the um, chief exec down the barrel type thing and said, you can't fire this guy. We've got all the belief in the world he's the right guy to have us as coach. And that was a really compelling story that they told. And they said, please keep them. Uh And then when Ian Foster himself met with the board, he was able to tell them that he persuaded Joe, who has been, I think, a little bit reluctant to, to jump in with both feet and to get into a kind of hands-on training ground role that's going to require him to travel with the team. He was really resistant that he didn't want to do it. But since the All Blacks got back from South Africa, Fozzy was obviously able to tell them, look, mate, I really need you to be my attack coach. I need you to commit. I need you to jump on board and be with us on the training ground. And once he got Joe to do that, that was probably the critical factor that persuaded the board that the whole makeup of the coaching team changed at that point because all of a sudden they had another uh, yeah, a guy that's been a head coach Um, of a a very good international team and who's been on the international circuit for a long time. And that was probably uh, the critical factor that made them think, actually, let's just see how this plays out for a wee bit longer because we've got a lot of faith in Joe being able to add something pretty dynamic to the attack game at the moment.
3: Right, that's all very interesting. So it's not like the board kind of inflicted Schmidt as some kind of, uh, okay, this is our succession plan. If you don't take him, you can't keep your job. It was actually Foster who wanted it. Do, was was cause If we think back to the, the bout of COVID in advance with the first test against Ireland, Schmidt was more centrally involved in the coaching that week than he had been up to that point. Had he still been uh, like in the tracksuit since then, or what? What kind was was he in South Africa, for example?
6: No, look, he didn't travel. Right, he didn't travel. And there's there's been a wee bit of confusion from the whole time about where Joe's going to end up. And I think when we talked about this back pre-first test, um, we all thought Joe was going to be more involved than he was, and that's what we were all believing. He was heavily involved in the build up to that first test uh, at Eden Park, but he and I think we all know this that he, he had a real reluctance to. To jump into the track suit against Ireland. He just didn't want to go there. His loyalties were a wee bit split. He felt that was the wrong thing to do. And we could argue whether that's a, the right thing or the wrong thing for him to have thought, but he did. He didn't want to do that. And then he didn't, we all thought he would commit harder after Ireland left and that he would go with the team to South Africa, but no, no change was made. He stayed at home. His role was to select the team and to be an analyst felt a wee bit weird he was doing it from afar uh, and then we all thought well that's going to be him he's he's had a check he should have gone on the plane if he was ever going to change he would have got on the plane of South Africa didn't do it so clearly Like we're all a little bit not confused but we don't actually really know a lot about what's happened here other than he has now changed his mind or he has now committed to being hands on and the process around how that happened why it's happened whether he's now thinking that he wants to, um, you know, one day um, assume command of the All Blacks and be a head coach again, couldn't tell you the answer to that, maybe. But all we know is that somehow, some some way, Fozzie's been able to persuade him and right. need you a bit more involved.
4: Like that is really interesting, the players staring down the barrel with the chief executive of New Zealand Rugby. They're obviously seeing something inside the camp that Ian Foster is doing that isn't... Manifesting itself on the pitch because the results have been bad. The players obviously think that those results are, are, are happening in spite of good coaching by Ian Foster.
6: Yeah, look, like, maybe I'm, I'm a wee bit sceptical because, there's, you know, like, players have got a vested interest because he's the block picking them. So you got to be a wee bit careful about taking their testimony um, at face value at times. I think that you know there's one or two of them. Uh, look, they probably smacked me around for saying this, but there's one or two of them who I think are probably looking at. Um, the prospect of Scott Robertson coming in, the guy who's coaching the Crusaders, and a few of them will be thinking, jeepers, if he comes in, where does that leave me? I might not be in this team anymore. Th- there could be an element of that, but I think the performance at Ellis Park would tell you that's probably not fair because I don't think you can play like that. And they and they dug their way out of uh, of a giant hole there because they were ahead, and then they went behind with 10 minutes to go. Boden Barrett was in the sin bin. With 14 men, they scored two tries at Ellis Park, which is unheard of, to kind of dig, dig a game out from there. And I don't think you could do that if you didn't believe in the coach and you didn't believe in the people around you. So I think there probably was a genuine, passionate attempt to say, we're not broken, we do believe in this guy. We really want you to give them a bit more time because we think with um, they've got a new forwards coach who's only just arrived as well. They made that change after Ireland were here and they knew that Joe was probably coming in to be more hands-on and they were probably saying, look, give it a bit more time because we think we're on the right track.
3: Who was the attack coach responsible for the incredible performance at the weekend?
6: <laughs> Good question. I mean, officially, Ian Foster was the attack coach. Okay. But I, I have a pretty strong suspicion that a lot of what we saw was Joe Schmidt from afar giving up. Look, he, where he's smart, and you'll know this way better than I would, his ability to analyze the opposition, see what they're doing, and then create a game plan that is pretty strongly predictive on what they're going to encounter and really cleverly built based on what he's already seen. Because where they were poor in Mombella, they were really strong at Ellis Park. So they looked at what South Africa did, they broke it down, they analysed it and they responded. And I've got a feeling that Joe played a pretty big hand in getting them to that point.
4: Is so there a chance Joe Schmidt is actually going to be an even better coach that's not a head coach uh, than he was a head coach? Given, like as you talked uh, about there, his proficiency in opposition analysis, if he's allowed to go big on one area of the team, as opposed to the overarching view that you need to have as, as a head coach, chances are you could have the best version of Joe Schmidt that we've seen on the international stage.
6: Look, I think you might be right. Um, we, we've seen that a wee bit. We've got Wayne Smith here in New Zealand, who's a kind of similar, brilliant rugby brain, but, but not quite equipped or comfortable in that kind of head coaching role, the burden that comes with it, the responsibility, the media, the sponsorships that you've got to deal with. And I think Joe, I don't know, but I think Joe probably felt a wee bit overwhelmed with Ireland in the end that the whole enormity of that role took too much of him away from the things that he's actually really, really good at, which is ask him to build an attack game. And I think he could be brilliant at that. And I think you're right. I think being in the background, not having to front the media, not dealing with the public pressure, not being frontline accountable, I I think there'll be a pretty special coach coming in with a lot of good ideas.
3: In the end, Ireland became very predictable under Schmidt. And uh, it, it just, you know, like any relationship, it went stale after a period of time and there was nothing to spice it up in the end. But at the start, and both at the start at his time at Leinster and then his start at the time with Ireland, he built systems of play that were irrepressible and he gave the players a confidence in their own ability by focusing on the skills first off but then also by focusing on these power plays like he was literally one of the most creative uh, minds in world rugby when it came to first phase ball and scoring off first phase ball and Ireland were still using his stuff uh, five, seven years after he had brought them the first time there's a a try we scored, uh, Leinster scored against Claremont that Ireland scored again five or seven years later from the same move that they pulled from the playbook it's the type of thing if you have the raw materials that New Zealand have that is unbelievably powerful and has massive potential
6: yeah. Well, I, I remember the try that Ireland scored to beat the All Blacks in 2018, where they they, they went back against a line-out, went back down the blind side from a line-out. And, um, you know, that was old Joe. He, he'd, he'd seen something in, in the NPC here in New Zealand, somebody a team do that, and he thought, I'll remember that. And look, that, that's the crazy thing about him. He, he He's also bringing a, a kind of, look, uh, the stories began to surface in Ireland, I believe, this year and last year about, you know, wasn't the super happiest of camps under Joe, because he's not a warm, fuzzy personality when he's the head coach. Um and that that's probably the bit that I'm more interested in. Yeah, he's creative, he's innovative, he sees first phase plays that are really clever. I get all that. But but what he's actually going to really bring for New Zealand, I think, is is quite a cold analytical brain. He's gonna he's gonna put pressure on the guys at training. He's not going to be a soft, cuddly guy that they cosy up to and have a, a warm, fuzzy chat with. And they actually need that right now. They need they need a factor that's gone missing since Steve Hansen went away as head coach, who was a real kind of force of nature, piling into them all the time. And I think that's where Joe's value will actually be, uh, as well as all the other stuff, the creativity and the innovation. But. But bringing an edge to the environment and giving, uh, giving the players a sense of discomfort won't be a bad thing for the old Blacks at the moment.
3: That edge had reached its natural conclusion. You can only do that for so long with the Ireland camp. But again, I suppose at the start, is there a good cop already in the environment? Is Ian Foster that good cop? And he's going to come in and be the bad cop? And away we, away we go. It's like yeah. the perfect dynamic.
6: Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think that's the dynamic that they'll run. Uh, look, Ian's actually a genuinely likeable guy. He doesn't seem to have that um, ability to really get under player skin and niggle away at them the way that Hansen used to. And I think Joel can do that. And you're right, it's got a shelf life, but we're a year out from the World Cup. And I think a year of getting that rock under the beach towel uh, is what Joel will do. And I think that dynamic will work really well for the All Blacks at the moment. And you know, they've missed it. They've had a, I wouldn't say they've had a soft environment, but they haven't had anyone. They had guys out of their depth, John Plumtree, um, Bradmore, the two that have been let go. They they weren't able to put enough pressure on the system because they were floundering themselves. Joe won't be floundering. He'll be loving it. And, he, and he'll and he be pretty good at niggling a few players and making them feel uncomfortable. Uh, and Fosley will build them back up again. So I like that dynamic.
4: It seems that in the space of a week, you would give New Zealand a markedly better chance at the World Cup next year. So
6: maybe, maybe. There's still a risk factor here. I mean, you've got to remember, they're looking at, what, uh, one win in four against Ireland uh, and two and 50% against South Africa, who they're kind of destined to play, one, one of them, uh, at least one of them, at the World Cup. So, yeah, you kind of go, uh, they won at Ellis Park, so that surprised everyone. But there's also a wee bit of truth here as well, and it was the same, like, when they beat Ireland at Eden Park, uh, Ireland made some unforced errors in that game and they opened the door a wee bit for the All Blacks you drop a few balls you don't get your wide um, you don't get your, your, your back row of the ball quick enough in the wide parts of the game New Zealand turnover and, and that game in part went away from Ireland in 15 minutes because New Zealand is still brilliant at taking uh, mistakes of the opposition and capitalising and scoring where they struggle is when they have to build and create the pressure all for themselves. And, and the opposition don't give them anything. They've been quite poor at finding a way into the game. South Africa did the same thing that Ireland did at Ellis Park. They let them into the game. They made unforced errors. They didn't play particularly well. And, you know, New Zealand were able to capitalize quickly and settle. And when they get confident, when they get a wee bit of role on the scoreboard, like they're they're still deadly. Don't even you know, like they're they're still a brilliant team when it comes to that, uh, pass and catch, turnover, rugby, play against a broken defense. No one will catch them. But there is a truth there when you go to World Cup, how likely is it that Ireland or South Africa are gonna give them that in into the game? It might happen, but that's not a good enough proposition. So I'd be a wee bit wary yet until we've seen the All Blacks actually break down a really good, accurate defensive team then we'll start to believe that they could win the World Cup.
3: Uh, I guess irrespective of how well they play between now and then, if that happens to be against us, we will be having nightmares about Joe Schmidt being on the uh, the opposition, <laughs> dressed in black instead of green. It's like, it is definitely our worst case scenario, where we reach another quarter final feeling good about ourselves, and then it's Joe Schmidt standing against us at the end of the game going, I'm really sorry about that, lads. I, I mean, I know how much this means to you. That is our worst nightmare, Gregor.
6: Uh, look, I, I, and I understand that, given your history. I... I I get all that, but look, at the moment, Ireland would be massive favourites to beat the All Blacks at the moment. Right now, they'd be the massive favourites. Joe, look, he, he's got a reputation, he's got great ideas, but we need to see them implemented. And we need to see, and it's not just about Joe, look, there's a few issues that the All Blacks haven't dealt with. I think they've got one or two selection issues. They haven't They haven't brought through enough young players to put pressure on a few guys older who haven't delivered. So there's a whole uh, ecosystem of things that need to change here before I'd be too worried about standing at a quarter final going cheaper as they've done it to us again. But I certainly think with Joe on board... I would be a wee bit nervous about where, the, if I was Irish, yeah. about where the All blacks could end up.
3: Oh, well, we are, we are. And so Owen makes the point that, you know, a week is a long time in sport. Like this, the, the famously the front page editorial, has the mood completely changed as a result of this or are people still very sceptical amongst the rugby public I'm talking about here?
6: Uh, look, I think there will be an element of scepticism. There's an element of thinking that the, that the New Zealand board... Uh, you know, had, we're we kind of committed to going down one path, and that was making change. And then they've been persuaded on one one game. So there's there's a huge risk in doing that. I don't think everyone's suddenly turned around and gone absolutely Ian Foster's the right guy. But there was enough in that performance at Ellis Park, and bringing Joe in and giving him an elevated role has. Uh, and, and the way that the players have defended their coach, has, they've all conspired to make everyone think, ah, oh, um, it was a fifty-fifty call at best about whether you should keep him or not. And look, the, the reaction from the public, there's, there's many, probably the majority feel the board's made the wrong call. They've been persuaded or seduced by one result, and there's maybe a wee bit of a growing minority who are thinking, well, okay. He, they've shown enough to, to, to earn the right to reprieve, um, and um, you know they're clearly going to back these guys all the way through the World Cup. So we should just probably get on with supporting them a wee bit now.
4: When the front page editorial gets printed, um, are, did they go to the back of the paper? Did they go to the sports section and say, "Listen, Gregor, give us a hand with this"? Is this the right thing to do, or, or how does that dynamic work when the the front page go go all in on a on a sports story?
6: Well, how it worked was I was in South Africa and somebody texted it to me and I went, oh, jeepers, that's interesting. <laughs> I had no idea that was happening and thought, well, it'll be a fun morning tomorrow when I bump into Fuzzy. But, you know, look, uh, it, it probably captured the mood of the nation. And to be honest, I don't think it was gratuitous. I know there's been a bit of pushback. People saying the New Zealand media have been vicious. Categorically, do not believe that's true. I think we've been analytical. I think when you lose five out of six test matches, four of which you don't remotely look like you're going to win, and you're the All Blacks, um, I think you've got to be realistic about the amount of pressure you're going to come under as a team. So look, there was no issue for me about that editorial. I thought it was fair and probably indicative of how the public were feeling. But we're now in a place where (laughs) they've retained them um, and look, until we see some more evidence of, of this kind of evolution or even revolution of the All Blacks, I think we're right to be a wee bit sceptical about where they're going.
3: One last question. Uh, Scott Robertson in all this is a, an interested party watching on going, OK, all right, that's fine. I, I see what you've done there, lads. Um, you know, if I was the RFU, for example, I'd be like, uh, we've we been opening after the World Cup. We we would really love you to come and you know just, just talk to us about it. You don't know... Just come and see our facilities, that's all we, you know check check the weather out it's like, you know
6: <laughs> yeah yeah look i'm i'm and I'd be surprised if they haven't already phoned him uh look he's clearly a coach of incredible potential he's his record at super rugby is is unbelievable. six consecutive titles. no one's ever done anything remotely like that. He's a clever guy, he's creative, he's innovative. Look, him and um, Ronan Agara would probably, if I was an international team right now, of it doesn't matter who it would be, if you if you've got any aspiration, I would be getting on the phone to Razor and saying, do you, "What do you think, big guy? Defence coming over here. We've got quite a lot of money to throw at you, and you can have whoever you want in your coaching team. and You just go and get them. We'll support you all the way." And I think England might be quite tempted by what he could bring for them. <laughs>
3: Would New Zealand feel like they've missed out if that was to happen?
6: Uh, well, yeah, they will because the danger here is that he, he's now he's now basically being told through default that the, the New Zealand rugby are going to back Foster and Schmidt all the way through to the World Cup. And then we don't know what happened after that. They'll probably do their usual or we'll have a process after the World Cup. By at which point, look, Razor, if he's going to go and work for another team, he'll probably be tapped up in the next wee while, won't he? Like yeah. Somebody will want him locked in before, before the World Cup kicks off because that's how the real world works. So the reality is New Zealand will almost certainly lose him and we'll get to the end of the World Cup and who knows what will happen at that, but we'll have no ability to get hold of Scott Robertson because he'll probably already have signed with England, Scotland, Ireland, whoever he's going to go with. He'll be gone, and then you'd be. Oh, Jeepers! Would have been quite nice if he'd stayed, but that's a luxury that's just that's just not available to them at the moment.
3: Yeah, we tied Andy Farrell down for another couple of years, so I I expect Andy no, Farrell well, to. Good. you know? And um, but like uh. It's it's a high wire act. If, if Ireland were to fail calamitously at the World Cup, then, you know, Andy Farrar would have to carry the can for that, and the next two years would be recovery. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen, and, um, you know, fingers crossed from our perspective, it doesn't. But you can see if you were England, you would be getting the best coach in the world at the moment. They've said that they want an English guy, but, like, all of a sudden, he's available in a way that he wasn't. And actually, I can see if I'm Scott Robertson, what, what's happened with Joe Schmidt, you'd be like, well, he's decided he wants to be a coach now, and Either way, whatever happens in the next year, the natural thing for the New Zealand Rugby Football Union to do is to go, well, maybe maybe it's Joe's turn. Maybe he gets an opportunity now. So they've certainly muddied the waters. But um, Gregor, Gregor, always great to have you with us. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. It's Gregor Paul from New Zealand Herald giving us some thoughts there this morning. Interesting times in uh, the cut and thrust of... If you're England, you're getting Scott Robertson, right? Yeah. yeah, I well like I mean you're sticking with Eddie Jones till the World Cup. No, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but but he's he's announced he's leaving. Yeah. So you can you can just hire him now, happy in the knowledge that like we'll we'll bring him in, you can sit around, you can help out, you can be a consultant, you can Sure, do you yeah, watch. Eddie Jones would love that. Well, I mean Eddie Jones might be like what ideas do you have for me, Scott? What are you doing? How are you getting those backs to play that way? Like Possibly, yeah. Maybe, maybe he's become such a because he knows coach he's because, on his way out. Yeah,
4: like the thing with Scott Robertson then is that he has a decision to make. It's game of chicken in his own uh, mind because if he hangs on one more year, he would be the front runner to get a job that may come up in New yeah. Zealand. Yeah. But the thing with news is like, what does Ian Foster have to do to keep his job beyond the World Cup? Do they have to win it? Uh, so, like that's it, usually what the, probably the, the stakes or, or are or in a final it, it be, you know a good return in a final maybe if they knock out some good teams on, I don't on the way. actually I think you have to win in New Zealand right he so can't, can't be beaten in a final so Scott Robertson wants to coach the All Blacks that's not going to be a, any sort of mind-blowing opinion there so he's basically thinking to himself can Ian Foster win the World Cup if the answer to that question is no then you don't take the England job because you want the New Zealand job because that's the job that everybody in that part of the world wants
3: wants to take. Now, England obviously would be very well paid. It's a hugely prestigious one. There's competition now, in a way, that there wasn't for the job. You were the shoe-in. You were guaranteed You think this. Schmidt could, could oh, uh, well, uh, surge from within. Um, I definitely think that Josh Schmidt would be a great coach for New Zealand. A great head coach for New Zealand. And give me year's experience with, with those players and a year's experience of like knowing the system and knowing... How to manage the board? How to manage up and get the resources that you need to do it? It's like, yeah. And New Zealand have given themselves an insurance policy here, but it, I don't know. I mean, I really hope that um, we knock them out at the quarterfinal stage, and they're like, "Oh, Scott, come on now." Yeah, that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is that Joe Smith is standing over. I'm really sorry. He's yeah. like, he's embracing Johnny Sexton with his big smile. Yeah, and Sexton's like. And just uh, Gregor's tweeting. Oh, for the first time in his uh, career as New Zealand attack coach, uh, Joe Schmidt is doing press right afterwards. <laughs> and she, like eight forty this morning, OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. A reminder, of course, Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Every week, we're giving one lucky viewer a €100 Euro voucher to spend on some Brayburn coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out at ball on Twitter, like and retweet our Braeburn competition post, and you'll be in the draw. Brayburn coffee is Apple Green's new premium coffee brand that offers customers the best coffee experience on the road. It's available now at 30 locations nationwide. Uh, we're on extra long time. We're making our own work just to make sure that we sweat the assets. Now, half nine this morning, we're going to be joined live on the line by Rashida Adelecki following her fantastic display in the 400 meter final at the European Championships in Munich. So, an extra extended show for you this morning. It is time for the sports pages.
2: There are so many idiots out there.
6: So many
0: spoofers. There's a lot
6: of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. Why should he mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma. Come on, don't don't be. No, I'm not. He is. No. <laughs>
3: The Irish Examiner this morning has Rashida Adeleke as the main picture. Um, on the version that we got yesterday, they actually had Brian Cody, not Israel Oletundi. So Adeleke makes the front page this morning their lead close run thing. Adeleke left with mixed emotions after heroic efforts. Uh, There's also Shane Walters doing um, press yesterday because he was the player of the month and he's um, he's ruining the fact that uh, the... Laundry had to be aired in public about his club switch, which um, definitely seems pretty bad. The Guardian had the story about um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Jim Ratcliffe. Uh, billionaire Ratcliffe interested in buying United. Uh, that's on the back of the Guardian. The Times have an exclusive that Ratcliffe wants to buy United. And it's also on the front of the Telegraph. So, uh, Ratcliffe, let me buy United. They also have a picture of Emirat Kanu who... Uh, beat Serena in Serena's potentially second last ever game and then was also uh, did she murder uh, who was it Azarenka Uh, 6-6-2 so she's back in form just in time to win the US Open Uh, there's a picture of Sheila Adelecki looking up to see what time she ran and where she finished Uh, Desi to stay in charge of dubs we didn't talk about this yeah
4: not a massive surprise uh, two year term for Desi Farrell and I think uh, like a I don't understand the negativity around this um, appointment, to be honest. I think that maybe there was like an immediate response at the time to think that his time had maybe run its course and maybe needed new ideas, but He's already got them over the line with one All-Irelands and wasn't overly fortunate this year with, with injuries. I think he absolutely deserves another year. So um, they'll be I, I, you make them almost joint favourites for the All-Ireland next year.
3: Yeah. Uh, France vs. Shamrock Rovers is the big game tonight. Kickoffs at half past five in, in the Europa League playoff. It's a massive, massive game for Shamrock Rovers but it's put in some context by Stephen Bradley has been doing media saying that he would have walked away from Shamrock Rovers in a heartbeat in the wake of his son Josh's leukemia diagnosis um, this was the news uh, earlier in the year that his 8 year old son uh, has had a diagnosis and needs um, treatment I was so lucky to have the wife that I have and the family that allowed me to be here and to do this he said if she had said to me at the time it's time to walk away I would have done it in a heartbeat my wife and Josh were like this is what they want me to do that makes it easier for me so I think um, Stephen Bradley's Uh, got the support of the entire sports public and everybody really wishes him uh, the very best in that and it does really put some context on uh, all of our love of sport it's massively important to us and we care about it so much but there are other things in life as well at 8.44 it is time for Virtual Insanity
7: You have entered Power Drive
3: Right, the hottest of hot streaks
0: This is a spoofer free zone, lads Stick your gloves on, because John Duggan's on fire Yeah, uh, we had a good week last week Will's out of Taurus, headline tip, 25-1 to Won the playoff at the FedEx St. Jude The pressure's off, 11.4% profit Back in black, as ACDC said Um, Heavy metal stuff So this was a very easy one for me to do this week uh, Without um, the pressure So took it as seriously as I would take any week, but uh, we're going to Delaware, the home of Joe Biden, for the uh, BMW Championship at Wilmington Country Club. Now, the hard thing about this week is we've never seen this course before on the PGA Tour, so there's a lot of guesswork involved. Uh, We're down to 70 now at the FedEx Cup; Uh, it'll be 30 by next week for the finale in uh, Atlanta. But. Yeah, so there's a degree of guesswork, a par 71 course. Worry McIlroy's saying it's very long. Patrick Cantlay's saying it's very long. So you'll need big hitters, bombers on your side. So a lot of this is about gut, about feel, What I'm, I'm thinking of these. So I'm not putting as much on virtually as I would have last week. So there's a degree of conservatism coming to my game. It's actually
3: harder with the smaller field, is that right? Is that the...
0: the uh, it's, I wouldn't... It's, it's the, the, you haven't seen the course. Right. See, I've nothing to go on. So last week, Willis Alatores finished eighth the previous year at Southwind. So we knew he liked the place. And he talked in his pre-tournament interviews about liking the course, whereas this is a degree of blind. This is a guesswork element to this one. Um, actually, it's still a fifth of the odds for seven places, so the actual each-way terms are not that bad. Um, now the odds are quite skinny to represent what you say about the the, the shortened field, but it is an elite field. All the top players, apart from the live guys, are are there. Um, the headliner is uh, Patrick Cantlay, who won this event last year in a different course, but he's sixteen to one for five each way. Um, these are bent grass greens is what this course is on this week and that's he's the best putter on bent grass greens the last couple of years Patrick Cantlay um, his record this year apart from the majors which hasn't been that great 10 top 10s and 18 starts 16 to 1 to finish in the top 7, 5 each way um, you know he's so consistent uh, he's a very good lag putter and these greens are really really big so I think that will actually suit him and he was in a tie for second on his penultimate start. So he's the headline pick this week, the fourth-ranked player in the world, Patrick Hanley, a favourite of the slot. The second selection is Cameron Young, at 28-1 to 1 for 4 each way. has been either second or tied second five times this year. So turning up in a new course has not hampered him in terms of his performances in his rookie season. Like at St. Andrews, for example, was second at the Open. So that's a really positive sign for, for Cameron, who bombs it off the tee, which is what I think you need this week. He's also 13th in strokes gained and second in strokes off the tee, and had a 66 in the final round last week. So Cameron Young, I think, can contend, like Zala Torres, to win that first major uh, title in his life, the first PGA Tour uh, title. Uh, the third one is an 80 to 1 shot. Taylor Pendrith from Canada for three each way. Uh, once again, hits it a mile off the tee. So he's 11th in driving distance. He's 10th in greens in regulation. I don't think the greens suited him last week. I think he'll have a lot of wedges in this week and I think that'll, that'll definitely suit him. He taught four top 15s in a row after coming back from a rib injury which kept him out of the game for four months. Before last week, so I think Taylor Pendrith, another rookie, is somebody that can possibly take advantage here, and a 16-1 for a place. And finally, Mito Pereira, who remember threw away that PGA Championship with the double bogey in the last hole of Southern Hills, another long course back in May. Obviously, that affected him a bit for a while. He's 100 to one for three each way. Once again, on the weekend, last weekend, both rounds were under par. Um, he's 16th off the, circus uh, and strokes gained T to green. If the putter cooperates, and once again, like Southern Hills, these are bent grass greens this week, I think Mito Pereira, who won three times last year on the Corn Ferry Tour, is somebody that might be able to outrun his odds at 100 to 1. So Mito Pereira, 100 to 1, Taylor Penderth, 80 to 1. Cameron Young, twenty-eight to one, and the headline tip this week for Virtual Insanity, Patrick Cantlay at sixteen to one. So let's keep the fingers crossed. We might uh, have a bit more luck this week.
3: All right, JD, good stuff. And uh, on, on the hottest of hot streaks, uh, one for one. Uh, it's exactly what we like to hear in Virtual Insanity. So, um, a couple of your comments from earlier that we didn't get to, Shane C. What a loss! Irreplaceable is Owen. Best of luck with it. Exciting time for you, but a sad time for us viewers. That's very nice. That's good. Michael John Harris says, Wishing you all the best, Owen. Started listening to the show last year and never miss a morning show. The pair of you have a brilliant dynamic. Class. I mean, we hate each other, really. This is all fake. Just It's fake smiles and platitudes and, oh, ha
0: ha ha. Very funny joke there, sure. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there'll be, be many more opportunities to say. So, oh,
3: what is that voice you are doing? Thanks, Owen. That was my favourite bit. Good I'm going to miss actually. that.
0: I mean, there'll be many more opportunities to, to say thank. Hopefully you. not. They probably won't. <laughs> they probably won't. He's going
3: to snip. He's going to like accidentally no, I'll like sick next week. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Exactly. Uh, well, uh, you know, Owen, you, you're a unique, brilliant broadcaster, and all I can say is, and you're a very funny man. Uh, you just need to go to the camera and just like do Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back.
4: Yeah. Hopefully, as I say, John, nothing in life is certain. You know, I got I, I, as in like I could be back in two weeks with uh, my tail between my legs. Be like, listen. Uh, uh, I oh, just unfortunately, there's
3: somebody in the state of walk me. It's I'd very difficult for us. On it's a difficult situation. Email, email
4: info at offtheball. dot <laughs> Hey, uh, this is my CV,
3: my resume. Uh, you the,
0: might know The carry NFT people.
3: is not getting you that far in Guatemala. Uh, yeah, true. I mean, true. it might. You might go to Guatemala and decide that actually this is the this is the type of economy I've been looking for in my entire life. They're they buying my shtick. Yeah, is are it's it, not it's not Guatemala. Where is it? Where's the where are they taking the the crypto? Are they taking crypto somewhere? Because I, I ha- oh, it's like I the main been... currency, and, and they've decided that they've Venezuela. Probably. I have a small
4: investment in crypto, which was a very bad decision last year. One of my friends was very uh, persuasive about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I have a handful of magic beans here, Owen. Would you like them? They they will make your trip uh,
0: how, up very how high. <laughs> how many how many glasses of Roger Goodell did you drunk by that stage?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I was just it was a cold, rational decision. I'm still in though. The only way is up. Brian no, Dillon, don't worry. Says no. Sorry, Owen not allowed I have a routine I get up I milk cows I listen to Owen and and it sets me up for the day so I'm sorry but you are going nowhere sounds pretty persuasive Brian if you come down and just drive the tractor outside we'll lock him in and we'll just make him broadcast perpetually forever it would be like an episode of Black Mirror where because he said he wanted to leave he can never leave (laughs) sounds fun Uh, good luck Owen Carrier surely worried with no one to year for them live on air says uh, Brian Heverin um, best of luck to you you're going to be sorely missed you'll be missed enjoy the travelling lucky boy oh, safe travelled and enjoy that's David McLean Bernard Lawless and Connor Mullins and Sean O'Reilly e. is actually getting closer to the truth Owen's clearly getting ran out of town by the Kerry Mafia for putting the kingdom number one in the power rankings best of luck with the travels yeah I think that is that is possibly it actually
4: um, that's it you know Kerry, Kerry won the all Ireland my job here is done
3: what do you want to do for the final week of celebration of your of your time here because you know we we won't get this time again um, I, I want imagine. people to send us their highlights of like what what like what what bits of Owen's career do you want us to revisit over the next week? You can send them to us. Um, uh, just use the. Well, I, I don't. know What's the best way for us to actually collate those? There, are, I don't. Know, there, are, there are many highlights. Um, Colin's chatting to somebody there. May, so may, may, maybe
0: add Owen on Twitter or something like that. Or? Don't
3: don't add him. Right. It's a, it is a, it's El Salvador that uh, El Salvador is a country with crypto. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you going to El Salvador? is it I probably will yeah
4: I mean you're th- I'm so not prepared for this at all we been busy <laughs> going to I, I, go to festivals <laughs> exactly it's been a busy summer saying uh, saying goodbye to people that I'm not really saying goodbye to exactly yeah. Just saying, oh, sure, I'll see you next week um, nec- no, next week is just going to be another normal hard day work we've done our we've broke the news now we've said our goodbyes and it's time to get back down the before. Japan
0: stuff and the mail stuff on get some of that out there long time ago John it's their, their former glories there's been other glories. Like, Plenty like, more to come. Plenty more to come.
4: It's like Manchester United basking in the Fergie. Or Plenty more to come.
3: Plenty uh, more to come. All right. Uh, 8.52 this morning. We have journalist Alan Dawson on the line looking ahead to the Anthony Joshua Alexander Usyk rematch this Saturday. Um, first though, here's more from Carl Denny last night alongside Richie talking about the issue of funding in Irish athletics.
8: Fingers crossed now. You know, we saw... Jack Chambers was here last night, the Minister for Sport, and there was a lot of uh, other people from Sport Ireland. They were all witnessing these performances from someone like Rashida Adelecki, someone like Israel Olatunde. but it's a drum we've been beating so long. You would like to now see them put their money where their mouth is, follow up those social media posts about how well Israel Olatunde did and start funding Irish coaches, start funding Daniel Kilgallen, start funding the many others who are developing athletes exactly like Israel Olatunde, because there is so much talent out there in the country and when you speak to coaches who work with, you know, the Israel Oletundes of yesteryears, the 12, the 14-year-olds, they're in there in schools, they see the talent and then they see the talent either get lost to sport entirely or get lost to GAA, soccer, rugby, whatever it is, possibly the more attractive options either financially or socially, whatever it is, but to really harness that talent and to develop that talent, you know, repeating the same thing ad nauseum we really need to start funding coaches properly in Ireland because there could be so many more Israel Like
6: That's the point that we want to get to because I think for Donkey's years and this has gone by generations of athletes we've seen one or two pop through and be world superstars when the feeling is that with the right kind of coaching and the right facilitating of that coaching, which ultimately comes down to finances, there could have been so many more Sonia's, there could have been so many more Katrina McKeown's, could have been so many more Tom Bars, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc., on down the line. Like, you want to see multiples of Israel all the time, and you figure that they are out there. Um, it's just managing to get the right environment for them to thrive in, I guess.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you first have to get the talent there and then you have to develop it, you know, and Israel had was lucky enough that up in Dundalk, his PE teacher got him into the sport and then kept him in the sport. And then once he handed over, and he, I think he had the kind of lack of ego as well, Jerry McCarroll, to hand Israel over at a certain point in his career and say, I am not a world-class coach and I need to hand them over to someone who can take him to that kind of world-class, international-class level, and that was Daniel Kligallen. And that's brilliant. And Rashida Adelecki's coach, Johnny Fox, at Tala AC, did exactly the same, was in charge of her at underage level, and then eventually said, right, she's at a level now. She needs a kind of a higher-level coach who's kind of equipped to know how to coach a world-class sprinter. And in Ireland, that is Daniel Kligallen. And there are others, too. You know, there's, there's a handful of coaches there. I'm thinking of Shane McCormick and Jeremy Lyons and Noel Morrissey who are in a volunteer capacity coaching a lot of sprinters to Olympic level um, and are doing a brilliant job of it. And you kind of look sometimes internationally and think the equivalent of them in Poland or Holland or Germany, they're in a full-time job. Um, whereas our kind of coaches are working full-time jobs in offices and then they're going to the track from 6 to 9pm in the evening they're doing that 6 days a week for basically for
1: the love of the
3: sport yeah brilliant stuff from Call Denny speaking with Richie on the show last night and more of that good stuff coming your way between 7 and 10 tonight including a feature length interview with Ian Wright who was in sensational form at Vicar Street last night in our Cabri FC road show. we'll give you more details on that a little bit later on it's 8.55 and we do want to turn our attention to the fight this weekend in Saudi Arabia Alan Dawson joins us now to talk to us a bit about this Alan before we get into the um, actual nuances of how the style match up. The fights in Saudi Arabia, the biggest stories in world sport at the moment are the sports washing going on around Newcastle and sports washing going on around Live Golf and yet that hasn't really come up in the boxing maybe because we've had fights here before. I don't know. what. What. What's your take on this as uh, somebody with a, a ringside seat, literally metaphorically for this?
7: Yeah, I mean the Guardian broke a story this week that a Saudi woman was slapped uh, with a 34 year prison sentence just for tweeting, the following uh, and retweeting dissidents and activists, um, the UK publication said it was a further example of how the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was targeting uh, Twitter users in his campaign of repression. At my publication at Insider just a couple of years back, uh, one of our top reporters, Bill Bostock, uncovered an app in Saudi Arabia called Absha, which tracks the movements of uh, women. And if one tried to move through a port, a text would be automatically sent to a male guardian saying, Uh, if they had given permission uh, for the woman to travel. And if there was no permission, the woman would be arrested, the report said. You know, there remain public beheadings on Fridays. And these are just three of many glaring human rights issues in the modern day still going on in sports. Like you say, whether it's British soccer, live golf or big heavyweight boxing matches, it just remains a convenient way for a nation like that to launder its image globally.
3: Has Anthony Joshua faced any sustained level of questioning about his willingness to help prop up this regime?
7: I think he has. Uh, I wouldn't say it's sustained, but he's definitely faced questions. And actually, find it quite interesting because when uh, he, he had the first fight there uh, against uh, Andy Ruiz, uh, which was a rematch, I, I've, I kind of felt this is just my take. I kind of felt that um, Eddie Hearn, Matchroom Chairman. Uh, was trying to act as a shield and take all of the criticism himself uh, rather than have questions asked of, uh, you know, athletes on the card. I feel like this is the first time that, at, that questions are really being asked of the athletes. Uh, it, may, it seems to be mainly being said to um, Joshua rather than Usyk. Um And I think Joshua even was asked a question of, uh, before the fight week. Um, this goes back a few, a few weeks, and he actually just uh, described... Unwittingly described what sports washing is. He said uh, he's got no problems with Saudi, and uh, you know they treat him well. Well, of course they're going to treat you well. You're the vehicle that they're kind of you, you know sports washing through. And um, so, so yeah, I feel like uh, this is kind of it. It perhaps isn't as big a story as it has been with Live Golf, but. Uh, there, there still seems to be some pockets of of good journalism. Uh, the BBC did a good article earlier this week, for instance, where, where they did question um, the, the main parties involved in this in this event.
4: Eddie Hearn's argument earlier in the summer was that boxing isn't golf because in boxing you put your health on the line and in a sport that you're putting your health in the line, I as a promoter need to be doing everything in my power to make as much money for you. How, how did that argument wash with people who are asking the tough questions?
7: Um, I mean, Eddie Hearn's always got something to say. I remember in the in the uh, Joshua Ruiz fight, he was kind of trying to point the finger back on the media or, that were attending the fight saying, you know, but you're here. And, you know, it didn't really make any sense because, uh, you know, the, those publications that were there weren't really being sponsored by Saudi Arabia. They were reporting on the fight. Um, yeah, I, again, I feel like, you know, that's probably a, a deflection fit, a tactic that Eddie Hearn's saying. Uh, I remember... he he was definitely getting more flack for the Ruiz fight than this Usyk rematch. Um, And maybe it's just, you know, the more they go back there, the less uh, negative attention that will bring just because it becomes a commonplace thing.
3: That's exactly it. That's exactly it, isn't it? Because like the the Eddie Howe questions have largely stopped. There are still some questions for Eddie Howe but nowhere near the level of intense scrutiny that he was under at the start when he took the job. It's now, we're just reporting on the latest transfer, tittle-tattle to go at Newcastle. Like Maybe when they get into the Champions League and maybe when they start winning Premier League the questions come back, but by then the horse is bolted and is doing a lap of honour.
7: Mm. I, I, to be honest, I don't particularly get too excited or excited at all about fights in Saudi Arabia because they're just um even aside from the from the sports watching element there's just no combat sports culture there and i just don't get the impression that they're trying to build or develop anything beyond just booking these random big events um there there are pocket there are regions in the middle east that do have a burgeoning combat sports scene uh one of which is abu dhabi so le- leaders there actually um instilled a jiu jitsu program in schools in, in school curric- curriculums and they hold international bjj tournaments annually Uh, They've got the UAE Warriors there, which is an MMA firm. They hold events in Abu Dhabi, and the UFC frequently goes there. So they, you know, continue to develop various combat sports cultures there, whereas I just don't get the impression Saudi Arabia is doing anything similar to that. I feel like they're just trying to bring in, um, you know, actually Joshua would qualify as one of their big fights I think they looked at Amir Khan they had uh, one of the super six tournament finals there Uh, but beyond that there's just it's, it's just you know a one and done sort of thing
4: uh, this weekend, it's playing out in front of I think eight thousand capacity arena. Like it's obviously no Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, it's no Wembley. Like, do we do we know exactly how much money Saudi Arabia are actually putting into this? Because it must be pretty substantial to forego uh, seventy, eighty thousand paying customers.
7: Uh, but the, the, the rumored purses that each athlete in the main event alone is, is supposedly 40 million dollars, pretty much 40 million euro, 40, you know, 35 million pounds. So that's 70 to 80 million, uh, straight away. Uh, Eddie Hearn signed off quite a lot of power, um, uh, to Saudi Arabia for, you know, they took ownership for the broadcasting, which is, I actually don't think this, this fight has got m- much buzz, if at all, over here in the US. Uh, and I think that's because they only really announced a broadcast partner uh, in the last week with Zone and also PPV.com. Um, it seemed like Sky Sports were kind of slow to build up, um, you, you know, their own promotion for it. Um, so, yeah, um, what, what can you say there?
3: In the US, uh, what time will the fight
7: actually take place? Uh, I think uh be about, be about mid afternoon I think the ring walks would be three thirty for, okay. for me on, on the uh, west coast. I kind of had to think where I live then yeah <laughs> on the, uh, I,
3: I mean it's interesting because like you know three four years ago before he was beaten, it looked like Anthony Joshua was going to become one of those very totemic international sports icons who can draw a crowd literally anywhere in the globe, and then all of a sudden that fell away so um to, to move on from the sports washing and to, to get to the boxing, like um, the fight's very important from his perspective.
7: Yeah, I, I actually remember when he first came to America, I didn't live here by then, but I was reporting on how Sky, uh, he, he was with Sky at the time rather than Dazone and Eddie Hearn and Matchroom, they were really promoting him like uh, like a Roger Federer of, of, of boxing. Um, you know, like a Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, LeBron, you know, they really wanted him they're, they're really marketing not just to be like the British or European face of the sport, like a worldwide uh, celebrity, and then what happened in New York, uh, it wasn't you know, like a 12-round loss it was a complete humiliation four knockdowns uh, it was a, you know, savage beating one of the best wins uh, in the modern heavyweight era for Andy Reid uh, on, on that side and um, and, you know, they've never come back to America since. There's been a bit of a rebuild. Um, but again, then he lost the titles again to uh, Alexander Usyk, and I was ringside for that fight. It was a magical atmosphere in North London because you, you, you guys know in Ireland as well, coming out of, you know, quite severe successive lockdowns, um, how much people wanted to get out again. And there was just a carnival party atmosphere in London at the time. The weather was good. Um You know there were pop-up food stalls all the way into the into the stadium, uh, and the the ring walks were really good. The the card itself was quite poor. um, I remember Callum Smith getting a good knockout on that card, uh, but it was really all about the main event. And and, and boy, did the main event deliver! It was amazing. Joshua wasn't really in it until the, the middle third of the fight. Usyk had the first third, and the final third locked down, and he was more dominant in those thirds that he won than, than Joshua was. And I just see a repeat performance here. Um, I really feel like uh, you know Joshua did. He he was built strong after uh, winning gold in London in 2012 in the Olympics, but um, I, I feel like taking these fight, taking another fight in Saudi Arabia. Um, a second one that, that should really be put in the UK. Um, I, I feel like that might be a bit of a team it needs to kind of win over a lot of the fans that he did have uh, prior. I still think he'd be able to sell out stadiums easily in, in the UK. But, um, you know, going to Saudi Arabia once for a cash grab, mm, OK, but to do it again and again and again, you're kind of alienating the, the base that you built um, in, in, in back home. Does
3: it also speak to an uncertainty in their camp that actually maybe, maybe he won't be able to fill those stadiums as much anymore? That actually he's not the draw because he's not as good as we were told he was. He hasn't delivered on the potential that was there. And actually what's happened is his late arrival in boxing and his lack of ring craft and all that kind of stuff that was supposed to have been to his benefit... You know, it's oh, he's he's not heavily fought. He won't have the damage that other fighters have had coming through the system. It's like, well, you know, he actually he's just not an accomplished boxer because he hasn't done the rounds. He hasn't done the sparring.
7: I I think um, he's definitely overachieved in the sport of boxing. He's you know two-time world heavyweight champion, and I really credit. Like I've done a few of these podcasts and and shows now, and you really have to credit his testicular fortitude in losing a fight and just seeking the immediate rematch. That's what champions do. Um, but who he's fighting isn't just a champion. He's a, a level beyond that, and we're looking at an all-time great uh, athlete and fighter in Usyk. But, it, I, I, yeah, I'm quite convinced he's going to lose again, and it could even be by knockout this time. But I don't think it's going to do his um, ability to st- sell out a stadium much harm. I still think there's big fights out there for him. Uh, I really think a fight against Deontay Wilder would be a monster event especially here in Vegas, um, you know, there could be a, a trilogy bout with uh, Andy Ruiz because, you know, they've got one win each and, you know, they could have a deciding fight there. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was quite a bit of a controversy with a, with a heavyweight called Jarrell Miller, who Anthony Joshua was supposed to fight instead of fighting uh, Ruiz, but Jarrell Miller kept on popping for steroid after steroid after steroid. He basically taken a whole cocktail of performance enhancing drugs. Um, but, you know, these sort of controversies that can end up just, you know, boxing kind of thrives on this um, negative headlines a lot of the time. And, I, I you know, a fight against Joel Miller could, in New York as well It could be Joshua's return to New York. You know, that could be a big fight. That's three fights off the top of my head that I think, you know, even if Joshua loses, there's still, um, you know, the big, big fights, big events available to him. Uh, And it's kind of testament to how thriving the heavyweight division is, even in the absence of, you know, potentially Tyson Fury claiming he's retired.
4: What about Usyk then? Um, I saw his manager during the week say... I've never seen anyone in 45 degree heat ride a bike for 100 kilometres. I've never seen anyone swim for five hours. I've never seen anyone hold their breath underwater water for four minutes and 40 seconds, almost passing away and then shaking himself. I hope this will all help on Saturday. Uh, it's probably one of the nuggets that we've got this week that's actually been entertaining in the build up. Uh, Usyk, the age of 35 now, um, I guess if you're talking about somebody trying to, to make their earnings before they retire, he's in. he's possibly in that position, but I get the sense that you make him the favourite this weekend too.
7: Yeah, they said, so, like, how, how can we watch that first fight and think that Joshua in nine or ten months or, you know, less than a year is really going to make the changes necessary? Granted, he's, he's brought in Robert Garcia, who trains, um, you know, quite aggressive fighters, and if they're going to go that aggressive route, really it's his only way he's going to be able to win. He's never going to win a decision against a far superior boxer, and Usyk, the only way to really try and win is to, get, is to seek a knockout. Uh, but by doing so, you just risk getting knocked out yourself particularly as he he could have been finished by Usyk uh, in, in the first fight um, uh, what was the question sorry
4: just more so that, that you're still making Usyk favourite at the age of 35 uh, yes. there's, there's no signs of slowing down but also I mean that, that quote from his from his manager we don't get to see it just hasn't felt like a very entertaining build up and I guess that quote kind of stuck out as something where there's actually been a slight glimmer of fun in the build up to this because we've got no trash talk really to speak of
7: No, I mean, you you rarely do with with Anthony Joshua and neither Usyk, but the difference between them, I think Usyk's got more personality. Uh, We definitely saw that in London where he was dressing up as the Joker uh, and we've seen, you know, know, fashion choices uh, kind of uh, permeate through this fight week too. Um, You know, Usyk's quite a lot of fun and it's, you know, it's good to see um, two, I would say heavyweights, but just two boxers kind of not need to, uh, you know, Descend to uh, you know politically incorrect or you know trash talk just for the sake of it. Um, the one thing that could you know you could you, you could say might pull Usyk uh, away from you know the mission at hand is just what's going on uh, in his homeland. You know, within days of Russia invading uh, Ukraine on February the twenty fourth, he was back in Ukraine, uh, patrolling the streets with a machine gun. Um, I think he's had family that have evacuated. But I'm uh, from reports this week. It sounds like he hasn't really seen his children for at least six months. so He's barely seen them, and he's, he's walking around Saudi Arabia uh, with a donkey, cuddly toy that his daughter gave him. Um, that we might even see, uh, certainly in the locker room on the night, potentially in the corner. Uh, so whether those things kind of playing in your mind, but I, I just think he, he, I think we're reaching to think that that can really have an effect on the fight. But you know, it is it's it's a potential tangible, nonetheless.
3: Um, what happens for him if he wins next?
7: He could potentially law. I, I, you know, how can we really believe anything Tyson Fury says? But whether I mean, he, I feel like he said he's retired about ten times in the last two years. Uh, a fight between Usyk and Tyson Fury. If, if anyone can challenge Tyson Fury, it is definitely Usyk. Particularly if he gets the second win in more convincing fashion than he did last year. Great fight. Uh, A fight against Wilder, great fight because it's two, uh, you know, contrasting styles. Wilder, uh, just a concussive puncher who's six foot and you know six foot eight, six foot nine against Usyk, who's six foot three and just a masterful boxer. Um, You know, there's still great fights out there for Usyk, but the really interesting thing for him is that if he goes out and he beats Fury, goes out beats uh, Wilder, maybe Joe Joyce and some of the other big names, then he really needs to like probably even those three and he's cleaned out the division he just cleaned out cruiserweight um he arguably won up the legacy that evander holyfield had at cruiserweight if he, if he goes and does similar in heavyweight then you, we're going to begin to ask questions that you know not only is this one of the best cruiserweights fighters of all time but is this one of the you know top 25 fighters in boxing history
3: yeah it's right there from really this weekend isn't this um Alan, great to have you with us. Thanks a million for joining us. Thank you very much.
7: Thanks for having me on. Enjoy the rest of your morning.
3: Thanks a million, you too. It's um, very interesting stuff um, from Alan Dawson from Insider there. You can get him, of course, on Twitter. You can follow the... Uh, I, I, this is Insider on, on Twitter. or um, He himself, of course, you can follow as well. Uh, I I'm, Now I'm up for Isaac. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, you you were up for Joshua beforehand no I kind of wanted Joshua to come good so that we'd see him fight and there'd be like a m- massive fight but that's like uh, at Alan Dawson Sports the correct Twitter handle sorry um, I just want to see Tyson Fury fight again yeah against somebody for all the, all the belts there is no question that he is the biggest draw
4: in boxing and the biggest one that boxing has had for quite some time the career graph of Joshua though is still endlessly fascinating and I think are we all kind of like waiting for one last resurgence. He probably needs Fury to be an active boxer to cement his legacy. I know he. most people wouldn't give him a chance against Tyson Fury, but he needs to take out uh, a big fish because I guess as if you wanted to write the, the negative version of, of the Anthony Joshua story, the conclusion might be on that Klitschko fight, what version of Klitschko did he actually get? And un- unfortunately, that is what the angle will be on what yeah. was one of the greatest heavyweight bouts of the era. See, I, and
3: I, because because the fight was so good, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, You fair. know, like there's a, there's a bit there where you're like, well... Well, the one thing about it is that like a kind of, um, like, I mean, uh,
4: yeah, there, there is also this notion about, about Joshua maybe, like how much, um, I don't know, the way he managed to just get back up from, he was staring defeat in the face that night against Klitschko, managed to come back and went from there. So it was a great fight, but it was also the fact that he was he was dead and he managed to come back from that. And it was like the the, the balls, as uh, Alan said, the testicular fortitude of, of some of the things we've seen from Anthony Joshua actually can't be questioned, even though it sometimes feels like there are those questions around him. And I think that probably stems from just the frustration that he hasn't gone on to become
3: the definitive boxer of his generation. Yeah, that's definitely there. But if he was to beat Usyk this weekend... And, and do it in a convincing fashion, then, you know, everything's back again, I suppose. So uh, a lot riding on that fight this weekend. But, uh, you know, it is also a signifier of just how filthy the sport of boxing is and how sport is becoming filthy and just a pawn for um, these countries. 9.15 this morning. OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. OTB Gold is our interview with Lance Armstrong. Leaders' questions at 3 o'clock with Stuart Lancaster. Our uh, retro panel is League of Ireland Players in England and OTB Gold is six. At six is Barry Ryan's book, The Ascent, which is about Irish cycling. Uh, Richie McCormick is live from seven tonight. The brilliant Ian Wright portion of last night's Cadbury FC Roadshow at Vicar Street will be played for the first time. And as always a Thursday, John Giles will be on hand with his football thoughts, no doubt sharing his views on the latest situation at Manchester United it's the first time we've had him on of course since the Annihilation last weekend follow us across our social channel subscribe to our YouTube and make sure you download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best sports content and analysis after the break we're live with Jim White and Phil McNulty authors of Red on Red a new book chronicling the fiercest rivalry in world football Manchester United versus Liverpool back after these OTB a. M. It is 17 minutes past nine this morning. I'm delighted to say we're joined by authors Jim White and Phil McNulty. Their new book, Red on Red, is out and it chronicles the uh, most recent portion, the last 50 years or so, of the fiercest rivalry in world football, Manchester United against Liverpool. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. It's a, a good week to have you on considering what's coming <laughs> our way on... um On Monday night. Um, Jim, I I might start with you. It's very difficult to to, um, get a rivalry like this down on paper, but you guys have managed it by taking specific incidents over the years and building up this collective picture of why it matters so much. Uh, How difficult was it for you to pick which of the incidents and the games and the the moments um, to actually make sure that you you captured it properly?
2: Uh, It's interesting. The the, the rivalry is one that... (coughs) in a way, has not been around forever. It's strange. I mean, we talk about Manchester and Liverpool and people talk about the the Ship Canal and all these kind of historical incidents. But actually, back in the 60s, Manchester United and Liverpool respected each other very highly. They had two managers who were great friends in Bill uh, Shankly and Matt Busby. And we discovered during our research that it really started to boil up In the 70s. And so we were looking at points in it. One of the most fascinating things is these are the two most decorated clubs in English football. They've won more than anyone else. I'm sorry, Manchester City, they just have. They've won a lot more than anybody else. And the interesting thing is they very, very rarely been in opposition at the same time very rarely had grand set piece occasions. They've met in two FA Cup finals, two League Cup finals and they met once uh, in Europe. So we were looking at the points where there were these big grand coming togethers and what made them really difficult, tense interesting occasions is because they were so rare and so we start in 1977 the 1977 FA Cup final when United pricked the balloon of the Liverpool treble and uh, United fans have been living off it ever since and Liverpool fans have been bitter about it ever since.
3: And, and so the great intensity of the rivalry was born. Um, Phil, uh, I don't know, is it an unfair question to ask, are either of you two supporters of either of these two clubs? Is that something that you, are, you will keep with you as a closely <laughs> guarded secret all the way to your
9: graves? I As I work for the BBC, I have to be strictly neutral. Uh, yeah, all yeah, I can Phil, say is yeah. I, was born, I was born in Liverpool. I am very well versed in the rivalry, uh, having experienced it cl- at close quarters and... Also reporting for the Liverpool Daily Post and the Liverpool Echo before I moved to the BBC. Uh, Jim is less impartial, and he will happily tell you who he supports. Go on, Jim. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm Manchester United fan of very long standing. I'm not going to
2: tell you how old I am, though. You could probably get a guess by the um, by by the visuals on this. But uh, no, I've been supporting them for over. Well, I've been going to games for over 50 years.
4: Um, one of the, the the great kind of uh, pieces that Liverpool, or sorry, Manchester United fans like to throw into the mix, and I see you've done it in the book as well, Jim, is you know the, the origins of "You'll Never Walk Alone." Like, is it really a Liverpool song at all? As, as a Manchester United fan, I know you brought that argument to the table.
2: <clears throat> I did indeed. 1959, I think it was the New Mills Operatic Society uh, were rehearsing Carousel, which includes. Uh, you'll never walk alone. Just after the um, Munich air crash, they went to Old Trafford and they started singing it in the Stretford End and then everyone picked up on it. That's the story. I wasn't there. on you see me? Could you see me Sorry, smiling
9: man. there? Because I'm com- i convinced that's a version of "Would I Lie to You" uh, with Jim <laughs> trying to convince people that that's actually true.
4: I presume it's just nonsense by uh, Liverpool fans as a phil
9: Well, Liv- Liverpool <laughs> fans claim. But- <clears throat> Liverpool well, fans Jim, well, Jim, Jim if we can get him off this subject just for a second um, he's now convinced himself that this story is true and obviously he is now on the hunt to find a Liverpool fan who will actually believe him that's the problem how did you, uh, but it's, ve- it's very convincing he, he sort of almost convinced me it's true how did
3: you guys find an editor to uh, make sure that um, <laughs> some some form of, of your own individual truths wasn't the only truth recorded in this book lads it seems like um, I can imagine your your, your meetings were pretty uh, pretty intense sometimes
9: They were very, very cordial. We've been friends for a long time. We're we're neighbours in Oxford, so we're we're more than the book. We're we're friends. And funnily enough, um, I think in all the course of doing it, for all the sort of questions that we might have posed to each other about, you know, stories, anecdotes, you know, facts, stuff like that, uh, I don't think we had a single crossword in all the time we were doing it. It was a really enjoyable project. And what we found uh, particularly was the number of people who, once we mentioned it to them, couldn't wait to speak to us about it. We've spoken to over 50 people, I think, in the course of our research. And um, you know, we spoke to people from way back, like Ron Atkinson and Martin Buck and Lou Macari, and the more modern, if you like, protagonists like Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville. And Gary Neville uh, responded instantly to our request to do it. And he gave us 45 minutes um, on Zoom from his office in Manchester because he had a meeting with the PFA. And at ten fifteen or whatever that time was, he said, "Look, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go because you know my time is up." He said, "But I've got so much more to say on this subject. Can I book another forty-five minutes with you?" Um, and we found lots of people like that. It, 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 it's a rivalry of such intensity and emotion that people who were involved in it couldn't wait to talk to us about it. Um, it was, it was, it was very good for us, obviously, to get all these people who were so willing to sort of dig back in the memory bank, give their thoughts on all the various aspects we we explored, like the musicians and politicians and even people who were involved in fashion and culture. Um, It was a subject that, you know, once we got going we realised we were onto something because so many people who were involved in it we're really keen to to revive their memories and give their reflections on what the rivalry meant to them and to the supporters.
3: Yeah, Jimmy, you make the really interesting point that the two the two teams haven't been both dynastic at the same time. That there's kind of been a, a cycle where one is completely dominant over the other, and uh, obviously that seems to have switched back just right now at the moment and yet at the same time the intensity of the fixture every season has been only heightened by the fact that there's probably been a significant difference between who who were the, the most successful team like I know they both have local rivals I know that the Merseyside Derby and the Manchester Derby are massive fixtures but they're not as big as Liverpool and Man United which is kind of weird in world football in, in some respects um, why 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 do they hate each other so much? What what was like? What what is the enduring hatred between the teams?
2: It's a really fascinating one. This I think this is. Phil said that there was no point of argument, but I think there is a slight argument here between the two of us. In that, what I find fascinating is that in Manchester, people of every class, every walk of life—you know, a high court judge or a bus driver—the last area in which they can be publicly disparaging about another group of people is about scousers so they will say immediately oh you can't trust a scouser you'll have your hubcaps nicked if you park your car over there they're all thieving etc and um it it, it's like this is the last place they're allowed to be rude about publicly Mm -hmm. and that's driven by the football because actually these two towns are incredibly similar in their working-class backgrounds, in the fact they've got a lot of Irish immigration. <clears throat> they're very, very similar. And yet there's this kind of lingering disparagement. Now, Phil claims uh, that it's all sweetness and light in Liverpool, and actually they're really nice towards Mankinians and he's never sneered about a mank in his life. But the other direction, definitely. Um, and and the, the odd thing is, people talk about other rivalries, Rangers-Celtic, for instance, That's driven by religion. Barcelona, Real Madrid, that's driven by politics. This is driven by neither. This is driven by football. Football sets the agenda between these two cities, and yet it spreads wider into a wider loathing or, you know, I I suppose um, loathing may be too wide. uh, Well, no, when the football comes in, it is loathing. Like and
4: and that's kind of one of the the key points of the book, and also it's like really interesting to just kind of read both of your perspectives on, you know, the the attitude of Mancunians towards people from Liverpool. I guess kind of like the the sneery nature that maybe Liverpool people would would say anyway that maybe Mancunians would have had towards them down through the years. And what I'm interested in then is when we kind of transport that to modern football, Phil. How the modern fan who may live nowhere near the north of England actually manages to put their whole sense of loyalty into that rivalry despite having little to no idea of what it's actually like underground. because it seems that what's happening on the ground is the most important ingredient to this rivalry.
9: Yeah, as Jim said, it's driven by the football and I think one of the things we, we, when we were looking at the more modern aspects of it, obviously one of the things you think about now is the rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester City. Now that is very much an on-the-field rivalry rivalry. Um, but it doesn't spread out in the same way that the Manchester United-Liverpool rivalry does. There's no real sense of history outside what happens on the football field. We spoke to lots of people, Manchester United and Liverpool fans, and they were saying that, yet yeah, while Manchester City and Liverpool have had these titanic title battles that have gone down to the last day of the season, the rivalry is just simply not on the same scale as Liverpool and Manchester United. That's still the big rivalry. And as a guy who spoke to, Robbie O'Neill, an actor from Liverpool, said... If Liverpool and Manchester United had had some of the title battles that Liverpool and Manchester City have had in the last few seasons, where it's gone down to the last day of the season, where even 20 minutes from the end of this season, you're thinking Liverpool are going to win the title and Manchester City won it. He said they'd make films about it. He said it would be a documentary series. It's a, it still doesn't quite capture the emotions the way the Liverpool-Manchester, the Liverpool-Manchester United rivalry does. As lots of people said to us, and they all seem to use the same phrase, You can't invent a rivalry. And at this moment in time, maybe the younger generation will pick up on it. Liverpool-Manchester United is a huge rivalry. Liverpool-Manchester City and Manchester City-Liverpool is an on-the-pitch rivalry, which doesn't extend too far beyond that. Liverpool-Manchester United rivalry is so much more, and I think will continue to be so much more for a very long time still, even though Manchester United are now very much in reduced circumstances compared to Liverpool and Manchester City. I think the international element
2: of it is really interesting. I mean, it's big in Ireland, I know that. I mean, I, I once went to Addis Ababa and they had these grand stands set up in a, a square in the middle of the city with a big screen. And... I said, what's that for? And they said, oh, it's Liverpool Man United at the, at the weekend. And they always show it. And I said, oh, right, does that get put up for the Champions League final or Madrid against Barcelona? No, no, it's only Liverpool against Manchester United. There are gangs of Liverpool and Manchester United fans within uh, at Addis Ababa, and we saw that uh, earlier this in the pre season when they were touring Thailand. It was like the Beatles arriving in in uh, the airport there at Bangkok. you know the the huge support and I think it comes down to the glamour of both clubs. It comes down to their preeminence and their prominence, and so you can achieve identity by being a Liverpool supporter in Bangkok and of course, the ones who <clears throat> have a real, genuine, proper challenge against you and your legitimacy and your prominence are Manchester United. So I think the identity of forming an identity with those two clubs is a really powerful thing and I know it's big in Ireland I mean huge numbers come over to Anfield for matches every weekend and the same to Old Trafford from Dublin and Belfast
3: Yeah well they were they were our clubs where the best of our players always aspired to play and whenever we had great teams they were backboned by players at Man United and Liverpool and Um, yeah I mean it is a fascinating we could actually do a couple of hours on this Uh, who's going to win on Monday night Um,
9: Phil I would say um, Liverpool will win although Liverpool have made a fairly unconvincing start to the season Uh, but I just think unless Manchester United raise themselves from what we've seen so far this season I think Liverpool will win I'm not suggesting they will win on the scale of 5-0 as they did last season Um, But you look at Manchester United and one of the interesting things we found was that even when one was down, when they played each other, the one that was down raised themselves and could get the big victory. Last season, I think a big problem for Manchester United fans and what hurt them was that those two games against Liverpool that season were embarrassing, humiliating walkovers. Has this Manchester United team got what it takes to raise themselves and beat Liverpool next week. I would question that. We will I don't think see. Liverpool are anywhere near their best yet. They've got Nunez will be suspended. Liverpool have got injury problems. I still think with people like 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 Salah and Diaz, um, they will have too much for Manchester United's defense, based on what we've seen this season.
3: All right, folks, we have got to go. We wish you the very best of success with the book. It's called Red on Red. My thanks to Jim White and Phil McNulty for joining us to uh, you know thanks, set guys. set the tone Thank ahead you. of um, a weekend of build up to the game on Monday night. It is nine thirty one this morning. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Um, Dennis Ryan says Up late this morning oh will be a huge loss hugely knowledgeable and a perfect deadpan antidote to jurors enthusiastic squealing That's very harsh news. you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It's a bit deliverance <laughs> Okay thanks Dennis Yeah
4: Usually I'm uh, usually I'm told to you know I'm, I'm happy that somebody isn't uh, isn't telling me to be more enthusiastic that definitely definitely helps uh, deadpan antidote that can be your new Twitter bio exactly yeah it's definitely not that I'm up uh, early in the morning and uh, don't have uh, the energy to get to enthusiastic squealing I don't know how Jared does it to be Rob honest Rob
3: Cousins says uh, double espressos Rob Cousins says uh, will be a loss to the show for sure sparse with his, his language is our Rob Owen knows his stuff full stop I, I don't care if you're sparse if
4: you're saying those things about me I'll that's a like,
3: ringing uh, endorsement it is thanks very much you're also a cultural icon. Thomas O'Connor says, Owen's official endorsement of The Van resulted in me reading the Barrytown trilogy cover to cover. Wow. Yeah, that was... Um, it didn't come to The Van until, like,
4: after Jack Charlton died, which was uh, pretty pretty poor on my part. But, um, yeah, but... Yeah. I have not read the Barry Down trilogy cover to cover, so maybe I need to do that. If you, if you recommended that, Thomas, I'll take your endorsement as, uh, as a sign I need to do that. It's like a, a, a virtuous circle.
3: Yeah, yeah, just a, a book club if you're interested. I mean, so, you, you are going travelling. You should get some book recommendations from our, our users. Yeah, send yeah. them in. Yeah, five, oh, uh, 879 180 180 for your um, recommendations. To Munich, and I'm delighted to say we have Rashida Adelecki with us again on the show. I'm delighted to welcome you back. Rashida, how are you doing? How are you feeling this morning.
1: Thank you, I'm good I'm a little bit tired but no, I'm fine I'm still kind of energetic still after last night
3: How do you sleep after running a new personal best Irish record in a major championships? Do you get any sleep?
1: No, not really because like you always have like so much adrenaline as well so rushing through so it's hard to sleep sometimes We
4: we had Israel on the show yesterday morning and he said he celebrated by going to McDonald's in Munich How did you celebrate?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, it was really late when I got back so I just had to Get back to the hotel, get something to eat, and go to bed. <laughs> Literally, like um, I didn't even think about that. Honestly,
4: yeah, he had a, he had the good idea. Obviously, the previous night. Like, what what is that <laughs> uh, experience in that headspace like? Is it? I presume it's kind of like hard to, to come off that because it felt like such a roller coaster of emotions. Even between finishing the race yesterday and then realizing a couple of moments later that that uh, you'd obviously set the time that you did.
1: Yeah, like obviously. I ended the race I was very cautious of what was going on I knew I was in bad position Um, when I crossed the line I was quite disappointed because I do like I didn't medal and when the time was coming up on the board you know first, second, third, fourth I didn't see my name I was like oh god and I was already like kind of disappointed and I um, saw my name come up in fifth on the national record and I was like you know what? I was like that like after the long season like I'm happy to be here and to be able to like make you know personal best after like 48 races or whatnot.
3: The race itself is, um, as Owen described it, there, a bit of a roller coaster because uh, you have so much time to think. Like it's it's fifty seconds, basically, of like thoughts and and where am I now? How's it going? What's that like for you? Do you break it down into little chunks? Is there kind of one one part of your brain just going run 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 run, and the rest of it going? Where is everybody else? How how much are you aware of as the race progresses?
1: Yeah, like I'm completely aware. I'm people aware of what ha- what's happening in the race. Not necessarily what's happening like outside with like noise and like fans and stuff, but like the 400 is so long that like it's just a complete mind game. Like coming off the first bend into, into the straight, you're know, just thinking, like, get out. And like, I was running and I was thinking oh I already passed the Polish girl inside of me um, on the outside of me so I was thinking like maybe I'm going too fast but I was like no listen to the plan that Coach Lowe gave you keep running keep running keep running and like you know at the same time when you're coming home on the home straight, it's kind of like just keep pushing do you know what I mean like I'm just trying to convince myself that I'm not hurting and just keep pushing just keep pushing it's going to be worth it at the end yeah so it's a lot of mind games while I'm running I'm very aware of what's going on
4: how painful is the home stretch?
1: It's it's bad, like, pain-wise, but, like, as well, like, as I said, like, I was in medal position until the, like, like last 10, 15 metres. And, you know, f- mentally knowing that, like, a medal is slipping away from you and you literally can't move your legs any faster. It's like, the worst thing in the world.
3: How do you know, like, have you looked across? Is it peripheral vision? Like,
1: So, I was actually looking at the big screen while I was running down the home street which probably you know was a lesson for me don't really do that because I feel like the excitement of me being in a medal position kind of made me tense up a bit because I was like don't lose the medal you're in a medal position you're in a medal position and I feel like um, that kind of threw me off a bit so kind of a lesson for next time like just focus on the race like you're in the race itself so just focus on that
3: Um, Somebody said in various places that this is only the sixth outdoor 400 metres you've run is that correct?
1: Yeah, that was my sixth race ever. Um, I'm still new to the event, kind of. So, like, knowing how to run it is always going to be a challenging um, experience for me at this stage. But, you know, each learning, each race is a new experience for me. So I like, definitely took something away from that race last like, night.
4: And I presume the more you do it, it's, it's as much about uh, running in all the different lane positions as much as it is running the actual 400. That if you get that <laughs> uh, crappy draw again, you'll know exactly what to do next time. I, I, I presume that's part of it.
1: Yeah, it's all part of it at the end of the day like it's all four, 400 metres lane one wouldn't really be convenient for like someone like myself being so tall having such a long stride I can't really fully extend myself but I just have to try to get out my head like each lane is equal 400 and you know, you just have to try and give your best on the day
3: uh, When did you make the decision to move to the 400?
1: Um, It wasn't re- really like a it wasn't really like a decision, it just kinda of got thrown into it. Like I did four by fours and like then I just randomly did the four hundred of at Big Twelves in May. And then like I ran a new national record there. So I was like, do you know what? Like, let me do this at Worlds. I decided a couple months later I'm gonna do it at Worlds and it just kinda of became a thing. So like now I'm just in it kind of.
3: Are you now officially a four hundred metre runner? Is that what your future is, do you think?
1: Um, I definitely will do it in the future. I'm probably gonna do more two hundreds or maybe a couple more one hundreds, maybe a couple more sixties. Right. I don't know. I kinda I love all the events so it's kinda hard to choose one, but my most potential is probably the four hundred
3: it feels that way, certainly. And the progress that you've made so quickly um, would suggest that is the case. There was also a report that maybe you weren't even going to come to the Europeans after the Worlds because you were a bit disappointed that you didn't make the final of the Worlds. Was that in your thinking or was that actually, no, hang on a second, I've just run like the ninth fastest time here. I'm going to go to the Europeans and I'm going to get into that final. and I'm going to keep going. What was your thought process there?
1: Well, yeah, after Worlds, like even before Worlds, I already decided that I was going to go to Europeans. Like I had like, example, I had a holiday booked from June um, and Worlds was only in mid-end of July. So I already made the decision not to go to Worlds because I was like, I mean to Europeans because I felt like Europeans were so far away. You know, I have a long season next year. I should just like, you know, end it there and go on to some um, winter, fall training and you know, get ready for next year and I was just I I had about 10 days off completely off after Worlds I was in like my off season and I just missed running like I was like I might actually just go to Europeans because I feel like I could do something there and um, my hope was to get a medal this was probably the most competitive year ever for the 400 metres like there was a ridiculous amount of girls under 51 seconds in the 400 this year so it was definitely a challenging thing to do but I just um, committed to it and I'm here now, so.
4: How many days into that 10-day break did it take for you to realise that you missed running?
1: Um, Probably about, oh, probably on like the eighth day. I was just like, I kind of want to run, like, Mm. because I just love running so much, so it's like I kind of missed it. And a lot of people would think, oh, you miss running, just go for a run or just maybe do a training session. But I was like, no, I want to still compete, so. It's a bit different in that case.
4: Can I just ask, what what are you thinking about at that moment? Like, what what is the bit that you love the most about it that you're you're thinking about? Is is it just running itself, or is it actually the winning? Considering you're obviously very very successful at this as well, like what what part about the competing did you miss on day eight of that break?
1: Um, I just missed like the atmosphere of competing you know the trail of competing you know and as well I feel like I kind of had like unfinished business like I knew I was in good shape at Worlds and I was like maybe I shouldn't like throw away the good shape but maybe I should see what I can still do because I knew Worlds wasn't like my best performance like I didn't even um, run a PB so I was like I knew what type of shape I was in and I knew that I could run a new national record and you know I kind of want to see if you know those thoughts were, were true
3: how has living in America worked out for you how is it working and and obviously you're heading back there for next year as well what's the what's on the the schedule there and what are the bits that living there exclusively allows you to do
1: Um, no I absolutely love it there like I think it's just the perfect place for for academics life in general and athletics like it just has a great balance of everything Um, you know a lot of people would say that long season isn't ideal, especially if you're going to do post-season competitions. But, you know, Coach Flow has a so- well to that. We can still continue and um, performing and continue running PBs after, you know, the long collegiate season. He just has like the training gear towards that too. So, you know, it's just the right mix of everything. And it just allows me to, you know, become the best athlete I can be. And yeah, it's, it's a really good, it's a really good setup. over there.
3: How long are you scheduled to be in the University of Texas?
1: Well, I graduate in twenty twenty four, so open for that at least.
3: Okay, and like the European season, is that like then on your agenda after that? Like properly Diamond League and all that kind of stuff, or will you be able to do a little bit of both?
1: Um, yeah, it depends. You know, I don't want to like overextend myself if it's not necessary. So. If I do need to do like anything, like a Diamond League or anything to t- test how I am after the collegiate season, I could. But it's usually the major championships that's my main focus.
3: Go on.
4: Well, I know you got relay this week as well, but are you eventually going to get on that holiday?
1: No, we have the relay, yes, but no, I won't be able to go on any holidays because my um, literally start school the day I get back to the US from Munich. So yeah, I'm straight back into it. I won't train until October, but school um, is on in person, so I can't really go anywhere.
3: Sometimes you know, college or it's okay to like take it easy for the first few weeks. You can still have a good time, right?
1: Yeah, of course, you know, I can find some, Austin is a really like lovely place. So there's a lot of things to do. Hopefully I can like, you know, meet up with friends and like find some fun stuff to do over there and just like make the most of the little break I have. I don't
3: know if you've seen the, the um, sports pages, but your your picture is on the front of the examiner and a couple of other of the sports sections. Are you aware of the impact that yourself and Israel have had this week? And just the you know, the inspiration that you're providing to the entire country?
1: Um no, yeah, like I just absolutely love all the support. Like that's probably one of the Reasons why I love competing so much because, like, I can put a smile on other people's faces and they can put a smile on my face. So I just love the overall like experience. Like I just love how supportive the fans are and how like much they give. They they give to us and so we can give to them. So yeah, it's just just amazing.
3: In terms of the major championships that you're talking about, um, when you go back now, having run a national record at the 400, uh, do you start thinking about that in like? in Olympic terms that that will be the target whatever else about running everything else and, and really enjoying that and honing your sprinting from the 60 indoor to whatever in the collegiate circuit do you think now from an Ireland perspective and from a major uh, championships perspective that the 400 will be the focus?
1: Um, yeah like showing how much I progressed in the last year from just Starting it and not even doing like no any base training for the 400. I just feel like there's a lot of promise in this event. So, yeah, I definitely would see myself doing it at more World of Olympics. And this makes me excited to see, exam- even what I could do next year if I start, you know, training for the 400 um, this um, fall coming up and, you know, get ready for it indoor, outdoor season. Yeah, it makes me really excited.
3: Yeah, well, we're all really excited for you too, Rashida. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Enjoy the rest of the week in Munich. Cheers. Thank you
1: so, so much. I appreciate it.
3: That's Rashid Adeleke there, uh, new national record holder at 400 metres after a stunning effort at the European Championships in Munich. Um, right, we're live each morning with Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Before we bring you some Seamus Coleman goodness and the news about what's on tomorrow's show, um, uh, Connell Foyne says, yeah, big loss on Sheehan. Started listening when OTBAM started through COVID, etc. We'll miss the Killarney accent as well. All the best. People in Clarny would say I lost my Clarney accent Would they? Yeah Which is true to be fair Did you? But I've only obviously Lost it to a degree Uh, Patrick McLaughlin Owen will be missed All the best in future Pat O'Rourke Best of luck Enjoy your travels Hope to see you back In your return Connor Delaney says Crushing news about Owen's departure Best of luck for the future He's not gone yet right Like you do have to tell us uh, What your highlights were And you do need to Or lowlights actually Lowlights Lowlights But I would be much more Comfortable hearing lowlights Connor Rowe Am I making this up? Or wasn't there a day where Owen turned up 40 minutes late and hung over to fuck? That could be my favourite Owen moment. Now, this is more like a con. This is the sort of comments, comments I'm after. This is, this is good stuff. Could you find it for us, uh,
4: um, could you I definitely... I've been 40 minutes late and I've definitely been hung over to at various times. I thankfully don't think I've combined the two. I think that if I've been hung over as whatever, I think I've always made sure to be on time because that's a bit of a red flag. I genuinely think the one time we could never tell that you were
3: hungover. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, the power this week. Uh. That? <laughs> uh, uh, what? <laughs> the vacant the stare at the space. We never, we could never tell you. I'd love to play poker with you.
4: <laughs> what were you going to say? Uh, no, I was just saying that I think the one time I was forty minutes out, I actually, genuinely wasn't uh, hungover. Although there was that one time where I just didn't, where <laughs> I didn't shop at all, uh, where obviously I was. Uh, just asleep and still still um, yeah basically still out
3: OTBA was brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day sometimes we're on the sesh it's 9.46 we're a little bit late uh, OTBA I'm back tomorrow from half past seven with the return of Adrian who's your daddy Barry Adrian's going to be flanked by Owen of course we'll also have the crappy quiz we'll speak with speaker French football journalist Julien Lorraine Ironman and Michael Burton the former Tampa Bay Buccaneers kicker Pat Murray plus much more
1: OTB.